0: Welcome to another episode of Cinema Shock, the podcast where we discuss everything related to film. I'm Gary Horn, and with me is my co-host, Justin Bishop. Hey, everyone. Today, we're going to talk about The Nice Guys, the 2016 film directed by Shane Black and starring Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling. This is a film that received critical acclaim, but was unfortunately overlooked at the box
1: office. Justin, what did you think of The Nice Guys? I loved it. I thought it was a really fun and clever take on the buddy cop genre with great performances by Crow and Gosling. Absolutely. And Shane Black's signature style is all over
0: this film with its blend of action, comedy and noir elements. What were some of your favorite moments from the film?
1: Well, I love the opening scene, which sets the tone for the whole movie. It's a perfect example of how Black can blend humor and violence in a way that feels both shocking and hilarious. I also love the scenes between Crow and Gosling, who have a great chemistry together. Yes, their banter is definitely a highlight of the film.
0: And I think that the plot is also really well crafted with its twists and turns and unexpected
1: reveals. It's a film that keeps you on your toes. Definitely. And I think one of the things that makes The Nice Guy so enjoyable is the way it balances its comedic and serious elements. It's a film that can make you laugh one minute and then shock you the next. That's a great point.
0: And I think the film's setting in 1970s Los Angeles adds a lot to its atmosphere and style. It's a period piece that feels both authentic and stylized.
1: I agree. And I think the film's attention to detail in its costumes, set design, and music really adds to its overall impact. So final thoughts on The Nice Guys? Well, I think it's a film that deserves more attention than it received. It's a fun, exciting, and well-crafted film that showcases Black's unique talents as a filmmaker. I couldn't agree more. The Nice Guys is a must-see for fans of Shane Black's work,
0: as well as anyone who enjoys a good buddy cop movie. That's it for this episode of Cinema Shock. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. How's that for a slice of fried gold. This is a
1: fucking costume. This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Don't
2: you stick your
0: paws
2: off me, you damn dirty ape! I'm sorry, Ben. I'm afraid I can't do that. It's a lion! It's a lion! It's a lion!
3: where the fuck was i guys
0: (laughs) where the fuck were you todd (laughs) todd's not on the show and so the ai that generated that show has decided todd's not a part of it
3: just over here jerking it
0: oh gross uh it's weird that the ai didn't put that in there (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that that whole uh weird thing I, I decided to tell chat gpt to write this episode for because i thought it would make my job easier and that's what it came up with apparently todd only uh, to be fair you have only have yourself to blame that uh, the AI chat did not realize that you existed uh, because you, you haven't been on the show in two months. Yeah, so, that's true. Uh, so that was, uh you brought that on yourself, honestly. Yep,
0: yep.
3: That I've deep, learned my lesson.
0: I think the listeners might appreciate that the shows were a lot shorter that way. <laughs> <laughs> a five-minute um, podcast episode for the guys at a Shock. Goodness, like that. all right uh, well that's not me. the real episode motherfuckers now you got the real one <laughs> <laughs> and maybe at the end of this the one that increases the profanity yeah there we go <laughs> uh, anyway well hello and welcome to the real cinema shock the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them. So that the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, human Gary
1: Horn. I am your other host, human film historian, Justin Bishop.
3: There is a legend of a man, a writer slash comedian man a co-host of a man not recognized by ai but by those who you know recognize him mr todd a davis is back for this very special roulette episode of cinema shock
1: welcome back todd we've missed you it's good to
0: have Uh, you back but i do have to tell you that if we're being all honest uh, that intro you just did there, that was the exact kind of thing that when we actually generated the AI thing, it was like, I'm not doing what <laughs> They're like, fuck it. I, <laughs> I am not doing that shit. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
3: You've... too weird even for the computers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, God. If we ever end up in a Matrix-like situation... Yeah, you're you're literally just getting thrown away. That's what we've learned. (laughs) The machines are just throwing your ass in the trash.
3: He's 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 too eclectic. We're we're just we're just gonna yeah. Just go ahead and delete delete him.
1: (laughs) Uh, We are happy to have you back, though, Todd. And uh, as we always do, in between the in between, you know, our long form series, we always do our little cinema shock roulette episodes. If you're new to the show, uh, basically, what we do is on one of our bonus episodes uh that come out in between the regular episodes we will spin a wheel just let the internet choose at random next time I should just ask the the chat bot to to pick one for us (laughs) see see what happens pick a movie Uh, for us to discuss (laughs) but uh yeah so we'll we'll pick a random movie that doesn't really fit into necessarily one of our other series That But we still think it's worth, you know, talking about doing an episode on. So we'll do kind of a one episode palate cleanser before we get into another long form series, which we'll be starting a new one on our very next episode. So this is one of those episodes chosen completely at random. I mean, not completely at random. They're they're pulling from a list that I have curated, but it's a list of like, I think, 140 or something films at this point. So Mm. uh, out of those 140 films, it chose this one. Although this one's a little bit different uh because this is actually a film that is very closely related to a past series here on the podcast. So, uh mm-hmm. almost like a bonus episode to that series is it's kind of how it's going to feel, I think. A
3: post a postscript,
1: if sure. you will. Yes, an epilogue. A, a, a
3: podcast postscript.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so the the series that I'm referring to is of course our Black Christmas series where we discussed the Films of Shane Black, specifically the films of Shane Black that are set at Christmas. So w- when we talked about that series, this was, gosh, this was two Christmases ago. I guess this would have been at the end of 2021. Is that right? When we started, yeah. when we did Shane Black or the end of 2020?
3: I think that's about right. Yeah.
1: It's so, one, one of those. It's been a while, regardless. Yeah. It's been a while. We uh, we decided that at, at Christmas time, we wanted to talk about some Christmas movies, but we didn't, you know, this is Cinema Shock, so we're not going to just talk about your typical Christmas movies. We're not talking about Miracle on 34th Street. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's just, you know, we wanted to go in our own direction. So we talked about the films of Shane Black, many of which are set at Christmas time. And when we did that, I always kind of regretted not getting to discuss this movie, the movie that we're talking about today. And I, I do kind of stand by my decision not to include it because, like I said, the purpose of that series was to discuss Shane Black movies that heavily drew on their Christmas setting and in the movie we're talking about today, uh, Christmas isn't really featured until the very last scene of the movie uh, in in its epilogue. So it almost feels like that's an afterthought. It doesn't really feel like a Christmas movie throughout, like something like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or even Lethal Weapon does. Right. But also, I really love this movie. Just cards on the table. I adore this movie. So I'm really glad that Fate has picked it out for one of our roulette episodes. Now, I would definitely highly recommend going back and listening to that earlier Shane Black series if you're new to the show, uh, because we talk a lot about Black's influences, particularly his love of pulp crime novels, all of which culminated in what was at the time what we considered the ultimate Shane Black movie, uh, a combination of kind of everything that he loved and everything that he excelled in. And that movie was Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Now, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, another movie that we love, was unfortunately not very successful at the box office, but it did gain a big following once it became available to watch at home. And it was actually instrumental in Robert Downey Jr.'s Hollywood comeback because Jon Favreau saw it, and it ultimately led to him being cast as Tony Stark in Iron Man. And then, of course, the friendship between Black and Downey would lead to Black directing the, in my opinion, incredibly underrated Iron Man 3 in 2013, and the success of that film, because you know it's a Marvel movie, so it made like a billion dollars. That would allow Shane Black to direct a film that he'd been trying to get made for over a decade at that point. A film that would bring him back to the world of the neo-noir buddy comedy that he had perfected with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. The movie we're talking about is, of course, Black's 2016 film, The Nice Guys.
2: You're a private investigator. My profession is very complicated, okay? It's nuanced. That
3: is a lot. Of, that's a lot of blood up and charge money yeah sad isn't it how much would you
2: charge to beat up my friend janet
3: what how much you got Twenty bucks that's good this conversation no is
2: over the mob is trying to spread its operation to los angeles somehow my daughter amelia is involved please find her you seen this girl Was in it for me oh we can do this the easy way Ow! we're currently doing it the easy way
3: whatever happened to offer me 20 bucks
2: the recession
3: hi everyone i'm amelia uh have you seen this movie she's a dark subject matter about an hour and 56 minutes tall uh answers to the nice guys just just kidding i forgot her name but you know if you see you just if you see let me know and tell me (laughs) tell me my spoilers
1: Just you doing that makes me think of Gosling doing that. And it makes me laugh so much. (laughs) (laughs) I did have, I did have fun putting
3: that together. That that, that is a highlight of the movie for me. uh, Getting getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but yeah, I love that part.
1: (laughs) But like you, you just reference referencing it makes like brings me so much joy because that scene makes me laugh so much. (laughs) It's great. Oh Oh, man. I, I not, unlike Justin Bishop, uh, was
0: excited about revisiting Shane Black. I uh, was super excited. And uh, I'll start with this because I didn't know where else to put this, but I liked this quote from him. And uh, I found this in an interview. I think it was Hollywood Reporter or somewhere. But uh, anyway, so we'll start here. And then I want to refresh everybody a little bit on who this guy is. He says, uh, one thing I'd like to stress is that writers work hard. And I like, That people know that. I know relatives who are like, well, you're in Hollywood, so you got all this money and you sit on your bed full of $100 bills. My mattress is not full of money. It's full of foam. People assume that in my library, there's not hundreds of books of Edwardian ghost stories that I read late at night. They think there's just some blonde sitting on a shelf lighting my cigar for me. Writing is tough. It's insanely obsessive work. Once you commit to it, you're screwed. When you dance around it and don't start yet, it's painful, but okay. But once you start, you go, oh, shit, I just realized this could be really good. And then you're on the hook. You sense that it could be good. So you're like, oh, hell, now I got to catch the whole thing. It's like when you start digging and you see there's gold out there and you go, I got to go get that. So that's shade black in a nutshell. But yeah. mm-hmm. uh, he spot on. <laughs> As a refresher, if we learned anything about the guy, it's cool to see like little certain insights about him because uh, during our series, which is still the reason I'm excited is one of my favorite series that we've done still is that that he's, he's, he's a pretty shy guy. He stays out of most shit. He's, he's seems low key. Like you just have to let the media kind of tell the tale on some stuff, the making of stuff. And we're going to see that, but, uh, and they'll make up whatever story they want. And then Shane's happy to play off of that. So you know like I said we'll we'll see a little bit more of that later but uh like uh, this is a guy that when he first met Richard Donner, Donner thought he was the dude bringing
1: the coffee uh and then he, well, he was a kid
0: was, yeah and uh but he wrote lethal weapon this is in his early what 20s and, he wrote uh,
1: he was 21 when he wrote lethal weapon which makes me feel like a real piece of shit. <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> and then it was the bomb and then he got millions but not like super millions like but each movie he made, if you go back and listen to that series, it just like doubled and tripled each time. Uh and like this is while he was still living in this place called the Paddle Guys. Uh they had a side out front that said open 24 hours. It's just him and some rider buddies. And uh, it was like David Silverman. And uh, that's the guy who did, like, I think most he did the Simpsons movie recently. There's Ed Solomon, who did like Men in Black, Uh, Jim Hertzfeld, who did Meet the Parents, And uh, David Fincher was a guy that hung out there regularly. But then he started to get this like party boy reputation, even though he's kind of quiet. Uh, he, he didn't even participate in like contract negotiations like for any of these movies where he's making millions. Like He just let, he his, just agent let his agent do it. it yeah. He just like sat around reading. And so he got this party boy reputation for having like LA's biggest, wildest parties that you always think about when you think about Hollywood, like with nakedness, drugs, and booze. Like and... the party
1: in, in The Nice Guys.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly <laughs> like that party. And, uh, and it's a weird thing for a guy who just seemed happy to sit around and read detective novels, but this was became his thing uh i found an interview uh i mentioned the hollywood reporter it was around the time of iron man three and he was talking about that reputation he had and then how he built into it he, he actually ended up developing alcoholism and uh he's he's sober now like it was something he worked through uh, i i like this about him he actually works with alcoholics now like this a side Mom. thing he does he says it was mind-blowing to me the hollywood i'd read about as a kid it was all right there in my house but there he was he was oh you know he had like one of my favorite things, too, was he had this career rivalry with like Joe Esterhaus, who'd written mm-hmm. like basic instinct who'd call well, because up Shane they Black both and brag
1: about they both, like at certain time at different times, were like the highest paid writer in Hollywood. Like Shane yeah. Black would become the highest rated uh, highest paid. And then Esterhaus would make a deal where it was higher than his. And and then Esther House would call and gloat about it. And Shane Black didn't give a fuck.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was it, because he never knew. He was not negotiating those contracts. And he was writing stuff with, like, it never seemed like he was in a, a hurry to do anything. It would be like these lulls in between something that he did until he had a project. It goes back to that quote, like, where he, I guess, found something that he was hooked into. But somehow, someway, here's this guy. Where everybody, or a lot of people that were around, have experiencing some similar success, like coming up during that time, and just kind of all faded away. Even like Esther House, who I think, aside from like Basic Instinct Two, moved back to Ohio or something. And uh, mm-hmm. by the time Iron Man Three was around, none of these guys were really doing anything. He, he had a quote here saying, "The guys I came up with during the '90s, the big genre writers at the time, they slid off the map for some reason." Here I am. 30 years into the business I'm still viable, still making movies. Some of that, you know, probably due to the fact that he straightened himself up and, uh, you know, cause he, he did hit a long lull after like long kiss, goodnight, Bobbed, and he was getting snubbed at award shows, called a hack. Nobody wanted to be around him. Even when he wasn't originally a party boy, it became that reality for him. And so he started to sink down. And so that's probably why we'll get into this, but like, you know, with kiss, kiss, bang, bang, that kind of helped things pick back up for him he helped revive robert downey jr's career who was coming off his own wild ride and Mm -hmm. uh able to return the favor to him with iron man 3 the only thing with iron man 3 i will say is that he did he did talk about that that was like a totally different experience for him like that it has all these moving parts and all this craziness and
1: yeah but you know The thing with Iron Man 3, and I mean, this is maybe another conversation to have, but uh, the thing with Iron Man 3 that is so impressive to me is because even though it is part of that Marvel machine that he talks about, I've seen him talk about that in interviews as well, where there's just, it's such a huge production. There's so many moving parts that he's still able to turn it into a Shane Black movie somehow. Like it still feels very much like a Shane Black movie. Uh, which is part is what I love about that movie. Honestly, I love Iron Man three. I think it's one of the, it's one of my probably top five Marvel movies. He's
0: really, really good. And I guess that's why I was so long winded with that intro is just that I really like this guy and I like his story. I like Mm -hmm. what has he's gone through. So I wanted to like refresh that in everybody's mind. And, And so it's funny when we talk about there's, there's not a lot of development stuff out there, like necessarily like the behind the scenes, like actual, you know, action and, you know cut and all this stuff going on behind the scenes it's because i think i saw in one interview where somebody's like so any cool stories or surprises you could tell us about the nice guys that he was like i made iron man 3 there are no surprises yeah this is nothing <laughs>
1: <laughs> well uh much like kiss kiss bang bang the nice guys takes a lot of inspiration from uh, the prolific mystery writer brett halliday and particularly his novel blue murder now, I'm not going to pretend I'm any kind of expert on Brett Halliday. Uh, we talked about him, I think, a little bit during our Kiss Kiss Bang Bang episode, along with some other writers that influenced that film. But I, uh, I decided that I would kind of look into this guy because I wasn't familiar with the book. I wasn't very familiar with Halliday. Uh, and I was curious as to how closely the nice guy's plot was to the plot of Blue Murder. And folks, let me tell you, I went down a rabbit hole. <laughs> and the story behind this book and this writer is actually a lot more complicated than I was prepared for. Uh because Brett Halliday, for one, is a that's a pen name. Uh his real name is Davis Dresser.
3: You know, you guys, I'm I'm something of a Davis Dresser myself.
1: <laughs> available for available for parties. You're a stand-up, uh, professional stand-up comedian. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> we
0: went to Todd stand-up, by the way, and that was the that was the joke
1: he led with. Well, Halliday, Brett Halliday is one of nine different pseudonyms that Davis Dresser used writing in various genres. So like he might write a romance novel under one name. Uh, I think that's actually one one genre he did work in and he wrote under a woman's name and that I believe I don't remember what the name was, but he is most well known as a writer of Westerns and mysteries and for the creation of a long lived series of stories revolving around a private detective named Michael Shane. The character of Michael Shane, or Mike Shane, debuted in a novel called *Dividend by Death* in 1939, and the character would go on to appear in a total of 77 novels, 300 short stories, and has also appeared in a dozen films, radio programs, and television shows, and even a few comic book appearances. Jeez. Seems yep. super
0: weird that I have never heard of this character. Right? Before. Exactly. He seems <laughs> prolific.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, I thought the same thing. And there I looked up the movies and stuff. I haven't seen any of them. I mean, they're, they were all made you know, in the 40s and 50s, mostly. But that's a lot of books about a single character written by a single writer. Yeah. Uh, but as it turns out, Dresser didn't actually write them all. <laughs> there is a <laughs> there's a dispute over how many holiday novels Dresser wrote himself, as he would later arrange for ghost writers to continue the series for him. Uh, It's generally assumed that he mostly stopped writing in about 1958, although novels under the name Brett Halliday would continue to be written until 1976. So it was towards the end of this run, 1973, that Blue Murder was published. Uh, So who wrote Blue Murder if it wasn't Davis Dresser? Well, several ghostwriters wrote under the Halliday name, but It was a writer named Robert Terrell that did the bulk of those, uh, churning out more than two dozen Mike Shane novels under the Halliday pseudonym, including Blue Murder. Yeah, I want to throw up hearing that somebody wrote all that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Robert Terrell, he was a career writer. He had graduated from Harvard, where he edited the Harvard Lampoon, which you may or may not know would later spin off a little magazine called National Lampoon. And then he got a job writing humor pieces for Time Magazine before being fired. Uh he was possibly fired because uh he was pretty left-wing in his politics and he uh he actually distributed like a secret left-wing like m- zine to like-minded fellow employees of Time Magazine at a time when Time Magazine Was being run by a notoriously right wing editor named Henry Luce. So Ah. it's it's a good chance that that's why he got fired. Ah. Uh, But that was really, that was like the only job he ever held that was like a salary position. Otherwise, he's just like a self employed writer for his whole life. Ah. Uh, He spent some time uh, as a soldier in World War II, where he helped to liberate concentration camps. And he wrote a couple of well received uh, noir stories in the late 1940s. But it was in the early 50s when the paperback crime novel was really coming into popularity that his writing career took off. Then in the early 60s, Davis Dresser had developed a severe writer's block and started looking for other people to write these novels for him, basically paying them to write under his name. And Terrell got the job to start writing Mike Shane novels, pumping out about two novels a year under that name. Well, as the decades wore on, Terrell began to populate the Shane novels with plot elements and characters that kind of fit their time. Hence the setting of Blue Murder, whose plot saw the Shane character being hired by an anti-porn congressman to find his wayward wife who's gone off to hang out with a bunch of sleazy pornographers. Uh, Of course, the further he delves into the congressman's past and the wife's present, the more complicated things become, which is how it typically goes in these types of novels. And in fact, here's how the blurb on the cover of Blue Murder read. It, the cover of this is great, by the way. It's got a picture of Mike Shane. He's uh, a little older. I like that they age him th- over the over the decades in these books. So he's got a little bit of like gray in his hair. He's sitting there with like a film reel, looking at it. And there's a woman behind him who appears to be naked, although you can't see anything except for like the curve of her hip behind him. But she's clearly not wearing it, anything. It's a great like hand painted cover, like all of those old pulp novels. And oh, then the yeah. blurb on the cover read mike shane the private eye who plays it as it lays takes a starring role in an x-rated case of warm sex and cold-blooded murder oh nice i love that uh, <laughs> great what a great tagline yeah,
3: just <laughs> better go ahead, than. go ahead and take all my money
0: <laughs> better than cold sex and warm-blooded murder am i right yeah my wife was talking to me yesterday and said she saw something on TikTok and it said uh if the river runs red take the dirt road instead oh no which, which could, <laughs> oh. that could be like a detective novel subtitle right?
1: sure it could what yeah. would that what would that uh novel be called I don't, I don't i mean if you live here in south carolina you often find red dirt roads as well that's true uh, the uh, uh, chocolate too. tunnel
0: of doom oh uh, no <laughs> a piece in a the whole murder <laughs>
1: Well, Robert Terrell passed away in 2009, and later that same year, his children were contacted by Shane Black's representatives about purchasing the rights to Blue Murder. Now, if you've seen the final film, obviously, I know you guys have, uh, but uh, the final film only uses kind of the broadest strokes from the novel. There's a woman who goes missing in the porno world, and there's a missing fil- film reel that's being searched for. Uh, that's about it. I mean, there's a crooked politician, I guess you could throw that in there too if you wanted to, although obviously it's not a congressman in the case of the film. Uh and you know, Shane Black certainly could have used those elements without ever acknowledging Blue Murder or its writer. And there probably would not have really been any copyright issues at all, I don't think. But I do think it speaks to Black's love of crime novels and his respect for those who wrote them that he not only acknowledged Terrell's work, but also financially compensated his family for it. Yeah, no, that's
3: a classy move.
1: It is. Uh, and of course when Black sat down to write the script. He didn't do it with the intention of adapting Terrell's book. He he mostly seems to kind of absorb elements of these novels almost by osmosis because he's just mm. read hundreds of them that they just automatically, piece bits and pieces of them, make their way into his scripts. Uh, in fact, when the script was originally written, it started not really with the plot, but with the characters themselves. Yeah. More than anything,
0: it was like the script was in Black's words, uh, just trying to be kind of good old-fashioned American pulp. It was One of the interviews, somebody asked him if this was meant to be a love letter to the 70s, uh, which we'll find later wasn't even the original intent. But Black says, quote, uh, it could have been a love letter to any era. It's a timeless detective film. It was supposed to feel uprooted in time. Detective stories always have and always will be uniquely American. That started here, The Gumshoe and The Cowboy, that's distinctly American. One other thing I want to mention is, you know, you, you talked about him crediting the family. There's a podcast episode of uh, the F- Movies That Made Us, I think is the name of that sh- podcast. Yeah, Joe Dante's uh, podcast. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's a guest on there at one point, And he talks about how he gets all this credit for Lethal Weapon that like it, he's like every inter- article about it says he reinvigorated or reinvented. The genre or something. He was like, "That's such bullshit." He's like, "I did not do that." He was like, "I am happy to tell you that I watched forty-eight hours just like everybody else." He's like, "I love Dirty Harry, and Dirty Harry was doing a lot of the same shit I did a decade prior to that." So he gives like credit to all these things. He he had a really cool quote, something about like, uh "He's like, none of these stories is like even when you watch a movie about Elvis or something else." And this was before the most recent Elvis, probably. But he said, uh, "You know." They don't just, you don't come out of the ocean and start walking on land. There's like a whole ocean of things and stuff you got to get through to get to the land. And he's like, none of this happens without the other stuff happening. And so he seems like really adamant about things crediting where they come from.
1: Yeah, I think he is being a little bit modest there. Uh, like, cause in the terms of, you know, like a, like lethal weapon. I mean, yeah, 48 hours came out before that. That's why Joel Silver got the job of doing Lethal Weapons because he had produced 48 Hours. But I think what Shane Black brings to the table, and that's the case with this film as well, is he's taking elements of the things that have influenced him and he's kind of remixing them into something that's very unique to him. And I think that that's where his talent really comes in. It's not that he's coming up necessarily with something new, but he's doing it so well and making it so unique to him that it feels like he's doing something new.
3: It doesn't feel forced at all.
1: No, not at all. He just seems like
0: because he mentions like you know Tarantino in there and stuff. He he seems to respect like people
1: acknowledging where they
0: come from.
1: You yeah, know. where they're getting in their sense. their uh, inspiration. The first drafts of what would become the Nice Guys script were written way back in two thousand one. And while that script did establish the characters of Healy and March, it was otherwise very different from the film that we would get a decade and a half later. And that script was written alongside Black's longtime friend, Anthony Bagarazzi. Now, admittedly, I don't know a whole lot about Bagarazzi. Uh, The Nice Guys was his first produced screenplay credit. And as of this recording, it's still his only produced screenplay credit. Uh, That doesn't really mean anything. It could mean that he's doing uncredited rewrites on movies he could be a ghostwriter, you know or a punch-up guy a lot of writers do that and you, you'll see big gaps in between uh their produced credits but they are working the whole time just not being credited for it for a variety of reasons uh, although he does have a couple other films in the pipeline if you look uh one of which is doug lyman's upcoming remake of roadhouse which I have mixed feelings about (laughs) it it is happening. Yeah. Uh, But black and bagarazzi had a unique approach to pinning the script to the nice guys. So when they began, they each started with one of the characters black would start. He would start writing for March and bagarazzi would start writing for Healy. And they were kind of exploring these characters, getting to know them, establishing their voices Uh, before they ever tackled the plot. They wanted to get the characters, right. And along the way, They would switch characters with Black working on Healy, Bagarazzi working on March. And then eventually, once they got comfortable with that, they worked their way up to writing a first draft. Yeah, he said, uh, Bagarazzi, I did find a couple of little interviews with him uh, where he, he talks
0: some about it. He says the earliest parts of the script were started. Right after Kiss Kiss, Bang Bang, he couldn't sell it at first. And so they were sending ideas just back and forth, like what you're talking about. He said there was no idea what they were even writing. They were just some detectives in L.A., and that's all they had to go on. He said, quote, Shane would write a scene, send it to me. I'd write a scene, send it to him. That's how Shane works. He just writes a bunch of scenes and sees what fits. As far as how they know each other, all I can find was this interview about the nice guys and uh, Baccarazzi says, uh, we've been friends for a long time. Uh, We've read each other's scripts and we're always helpful. In this instance, we were really looking for something to work on together. And we like a lot of the same books. And we both went through this period of reading obscure 70s books and watching the Rockford Files. we wanted to do something in that vein. He says, Shane has a really weird way of writing where it's a hard thing to do. He'll sit down, write that scene. He'll put it in a box. It'll come back the next day and write another scene that's totally unrelated. And he'll put it there until he gets about 30 scenes. And he gets like a stack of scenes together. And then whatever seems to fit together or whatever he can make work together, that's what he does. That's so wild. (laughs) Yeah, he says he literally goes through it and says, he'll read them all. He goes, this sucks. This one's good. And pretty soon he'll have a stack. It'll go, well, these don't go together, but if I change this character and these three go together, I have a, I have three scenes. So I'm writing this movie and then he'll start (laughs) typing. And he says, it's such a torturous process to watch him go through. So we discussed in advance that this is going to be a pulpy detective thing, but that's pretty much all we knew. He said, okay, well you go write a character. I'll go write a different character. So we knew we had that basically what Justin just talked about with Healy and Mark, uh,
1: and so they just went back and forth and just figured out how to make the movie. That's such a bizarre process, but fascinating. I've never heard of anyone working that way.
0: It reminded no, no. me of uh, what was the one we did? Was it was it Cameron or some, somebody did that recently where they would like one person would write something and send it to the other person and they would punch it up or something. It or might like, have been right?
1: James Cameron. I can't remember. It, was, it wasn't It was it wasn't Jodorowsky. No, it was <laughs> <some> Jodorowsky. <laughs> it
3: kind of it kind of sounds like how they used to do Marvel Comics back in the day where they, the artist and writer would just go off and start working, and then at one point they would just switch, you know, so the the writer would hand the whatever dialogue he'd written to the artist, and the artist would send whatever he'd drawn so far to the writer, and they would just kind of develop it together that way. Hmm, um, interesting.
1: Well, at the time that they were writing this, Black had not really considered directing the script himself, because remember... Uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was his directing debut. Uh, this was before Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, so he had been known solely as a screenwriter before that. Uh, when he wrote The Nice Guys, uh, he wrote it after Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, but but before he decided to direct Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Just to be specific, there. So when he wrote The Nice Guys, it was with the intention of selling it to a studio for someone else to direct, just like all of his other previous scripts had. But that didn't work out. That original script, which was set in the modern day, not in the 1970s, uh, that script of def- failed to attract any buyers from any of the studios. So Black and Bagarazzi reworked the idea into a 64-page script that could serve as a television pilot. And then they started shopping that around to the major networks. And they did generate a little bit of interest in the teleplay, particularly from CBS, who saw the potential in these characters as the backbone of a series, but it never ended up getting very far mostly due to the content of the story and objections by the network standards and practices department which I'm guessing they had some issues with how heavily it featured the porn industry on network television
3: oh come on now <laughs>
1: <laughs> I imagine if this were getting done now though it would just be it would go to HBO and nobody would care right yeah. or yeah or, that's or, true <laughs> or Netflix or or even Paramount plus you know or any of the streaming services yeah but at this point it seemed like the nice guys wasn't really going to go anywhere so it was put on the back burner while Black worked on other things, including Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Then a few years later, in 2009, Baccarazzi revisited the idea and suggested changing the setting from present day to uh, the 1970s. And Joel Silver, who was Black's friend and a longtime producer, remember... Uh, that their relationship dates all the way back to Lethal Weapon. He was initially wary about the idea of doing a period piece, worried that audiences wouldn't be as welcoming to something that wasn't set in the present day. But he changed his mind after producing Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes in 2009, a movie which was set in 1891 and grossed almost half a billion dollars. Now, having Robert Downey Jr. starring in a movie, like literally the year after the first Iron Man came out, uh, that probably helped, but... The lesson that was taken from Sherlock Holmes' success was that it was possible for a period film to be a mainstream success. So they reworked the script to have it set in the 1970s, a decision that worked really perfectly for the story they were trying to tell, because... Not only is the '70s porn industry an intriguing world, a much more intriguing world probably than a present-day porn industry would be. Uh, (laughs) I mean, imagine this movie, but it's all like on Pornhub and stuff. That wouldn't wouldn't (laughs) be quite as exciting, right? As somebody projecting it on like their wall in a living room. But this setting it in the '70s also allowed Black and Bagarazzi to work and social commentary regarding the auto and oil industries there's a lot of talk about the smog in LA i mean you hear that radio uh, the smog alert announcement where it's like don't go outside before 6 p.m. it's like what the fuck like that's that's kind of terrifying you know yeah that was all kind of hot button stuff in the 70s and it's stuff that's still relevant today even so it's it's really kind of perfect a perfect setting and in addition to that it eliminated modern conveniences like cell phones which adds another level of suspense to the film when characters aren't able to be in direct and immediate contact with each other. Yeah. There was also
0: like the Iran oil crisis, like, or mm-hmm. because of the Iran revolution. Like, there's some references to that in here. But... Yeah. You
1: see the people like waiting in line at the pumps and it says 10 gallon limit per person. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Uh, so cars obviously play
0: a big role but but it also you know you get car chases out of that so it uh, was yeah. another <laughs> another part of the 70s he talks about bullet a lot you know it was yeah. it like 68 and he says uh, another movie i haven't seen the the seven ups uh, i don't know that was one. the 70s he said that film's director philip d'antoni was a second unit guy who specialized in car chases he said in the 70s it just felt commonplace that you had to have like cool stuts
1: like that. Oh and, yeah, uh, you had Vanishing Point, you had Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, you had all these like great car chase movies in the 70s. I just rewatched Bullet recently a couple of weeks ago, and that movie is still incredible. It's so good. Uh,
0: you, you talked about that, the social commentary, though, but I mean, he also says that, quote, he said that, I just felt there was an exuberance to the 70s. They were a different, it was a different time. Instead of all this divisiveness that we see now, it was the aftermath of the protests, and you got a sense that we were all in it together. TV was a multiculturalism, even Sesame Street. It was really was playing out of how eclectic, inclusive and diverse everything was. And you get to forge this ecstatic celebration of oneness. He said, and I wasn't looking to make like a completely glum movie.
1: Yeah, I I agree with that. I mean, the, you know, the the party scene is a great example of that. Like that would play very differently if it were set in the modern day. For one, you wouldn't have Earth, Wind & Fire playing at the party, I guess. But uh, just the costumes and everything (laughs) about that scene, like it pops because of the setting. Same with the end at the L.A. car show. You know, it all pops because of. The clothing and the style of the cars and all this stuff that wouldn't quite work in the same way if it were set in the modern day. Yeah, that's true. So they rewrote it, made all these changes, but still even with these changes, it would be a while before the project gained traction. So in the meantime, Shane Black went and made a Marvel movie. (laughs) (laughs) And Iron Man 3, which uh, as I mentioned before, manages to still feel like a full-on Shane Black movie, even while functioning as a Marvel movie. Uh, that was released in April of 2013, and it made $1.2 billion, with a B, $1.2 billion at the box office, giving Black the ability to do I mean, pretty much whatever he wanted to do for his next movie, He was he, that was his blank check. So when Joel Silver asked Black what his next step would be after directing, you know, the biggest film is his career, whereas a lot of directors, they'll direct a Marvel movie. It makes a billion dollars, and they want to make another movie that's successful, so they just stick with making Marvel movies, which is mm-hmm. fine if that's what you want to do with your career, but... Shane Black is clearly not interested in making a bunch of blockbusters over and over again. Yeah. So when Joel Silver said, hey, what you just made a billion dollars at the box office. What are you going to do now? He said, I want to make The Nice Guys. He wanted to revisit The Nice Guys. And this time, on the heels of Iron Man 3, getting the film off the ground would be a lot easier than it had been a few years before. So Silver starts sending scripts out to actors, agents in about 2014. One of the people that they sent it to, which was their first choice for one of the lead roles was Ryan Gosling, who he read the script and absolutely loved it. Now, Gosling, you know, this is 2014. He had been on a roll in the early 2010s. He had worked on several critically acclaimed and, for the most part, commercially successful films like Blue Valentine, Drive, uh, The Place Beyond the Pines, Gangster Squad, Only God Forgives. Uh, He was actually just about to film Adam McKay's The Big Short, which would end up being nominated for an Oscar for Best Picture the next year. But the role in The Nice Guys wasn't like anything else that Goslin had ever done before. He had never had much of a chance to really show his comedic chops, even though, as we see in the film, he is a natural at it.
3: Yeah, I um just to kind of get uh, into it a little bit. The thing that really stuck out for me, I know you talked about him, you know, trying to have you seen this girl while he's drunk? Mm-hmm. But the one for me <laughs> was him trying to light the cigarette and it. Illuminates the dead body behind mm-hmm. him, and then he sees it on the second go round. And then it's it turns into an abbot and Costello, bit. yeah.
1: Exactly. It's a 100% him doing Lou Costello, so yeah, like where he's like can't talk. It's it is perfect, it is dead on,
3: yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was so great, and uh, combined with. The cinematography and lighting to kind of illuminate that dead body because I had come, I mean, I had seen this movie before, but I had completely forgotten about that, yeah. And even though you see it once and then you see it again, I it, it was so quick on that first one, I was like, wait a minute, is that a dead body?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's you know who plays the dead body.
3: Uh, yeah, I saw it. In the, yeah, <laughs>
1: it's uh, Robert Downey Jr., I, which, uh, which you would never recognize. Him. He's no, his, I mean, he has got like uh, just a bunch of gore, yeah, <laughs> so you can't really see him. I, I don't know how that came I mean, obviously, him and Shane Black are friends, yeah, but uh, I don't know <laughs> I, if he just like said, Hey, do you want to come like play a dead body one day? <laughs> I, you know, I don't know how that came along. It, I mean, they as we'll get into, they filmed this in Atlanta where they film a lot of uh, Marvel stuff. Mm-hmm. I, ironically, not Iron Man 3. I think Iron Man 3 was mostly filmed up. Uh, uh, further North, uh, partially in like Vancouver probably, oh,
2: okay. but, uh,
1: it wasn't filmed in Atlanta, but most of the Marvel movies are. So maybe he was making like the next Avengers movie or something and happened to be in town <laughs> or something. Oh, nice. I'm, <laughs> I'm really not sure. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the, you mentioned the cinematography. We haven't really talked much about it. I don't really have much of my notes about it, but the guy who is the cinematographer is uh, a French guy named Philippe Rousselot. R- mm. Rousselot is probably how it's pronounced. Uh, but he did uh, like A River Runs Through It, Interview with the Vampire. Oh, wow. uh, he's Yeah, he's done some pretty amazing looking movies. Dangerous Liaisons, uh, Tim Burton's Big Fish. So the guy's got chops for sure. So uh, Ryan Gosling reads this script and Black gets a call from Gosling's agent who told him, like, this is exactly the sort of thing that Ryan's looking for. He wants to branch out, do something different. This is it. And when he read the script, Gosling says that he knew that Black was looking uh, to cast Russell Crowe in the other lead role, so he read the script with Crowe in mind for the other role. And that he says that that just made the script all that much funnier to him because Crowe, you know, like Gosling, he was known for more serious roles. This is yeah. the guy. This is the serious guy you you bring into like add gravitas to a movie uh, he doesn't do comedies have you i i don't i can't name another comedy with russell crowe in it off the top of my head uh I mean, master so,
3: and commander is pretty funny
1: <laughs> so not, not int- I, don't, I don't think it's intentionally very funny uh, uh, but okay I'm, uh, i might I, be that, misreading that that's a great movie but uh <laughs> yeah so so he read it with crowe in mind and to him just seeing russell crowe in this movie just made the script that much better so and, and also for Gosling, getting to work with Crow, which was an actor he'd always looked up to, that was like a, a major selling point for him. Mm. Gosling, it actually in one of the interviews I was
0: reading, he uh, he mentioned, he said, uh, he said, I don't know how serious and hard-boiled this was meant to be, but I read it and I thought, there's a great opportunity here for a lot of physical comedy. And obviously everybody reads the script differently, and I was a little nervous going into it because I didn't know how Russell Crowe envisioned everything, mm-hmm. but... um if you're wondering how Crow envisioned it, I found a quote of him about what he thought about the script. He says uh, with an interview with Collider, I'm trying to remember if I could do a Russell Crowe voice that I probably would fail at it because I just pictured <laughs> it in Russell Crowe saying it. But he says, uh, if you look back at, through the movies I've made, there's always comedies in the cycle. I really like the density of the script and what the narrative was trying to achieve. And I thought it had really noble intentions. I wouldn't have described it necessarily as comedy because it's full of social commentary and other things that you don't necessarily find in comedy. The way I read it's like if you have coffee with a comedian and you say something funny, they go, that was funny. They won't laugh. They just say that was funny. I felt like that. It wasn't a <laughs> thigh slapper, but you could see that it set up a dynamic and it would be funny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a decent Russell Crowe, Gary, except that he is fucking Australian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He is Australian and he did not have an accent at all there's uh, no
0: way that i could go into australia without immediately hitting the throw it on a ship on the barbie
3: <laughs> just just one more thing about the about the physical comedy element it's such a small part of part of the movie but it's really early on as uh ryan gosling's is about to break into that bar and he's yeah. wrapping the thing around mm-hmm. his around his fist and then at one point just before he punches it pops up <laughs> like, yeah. a, like a rabbit ear and he holds <laughs> it back down. It's and so
1: good. There, yeah,
3: yeah. It's such a small thing, but that's so funny.
1: I mean and it proves how good he is. Yeah. That yeah. he's thinking of those little things. Mm-hmm. Gosling found out that or he had heard that Black was talking to Crow, which ended up being true. Uh, In fact, right around the time that Gosling was coming onto the project, Black was on a plane to Australia to meet with Crow about the film. And Crow had already read the script and he did enjoy it. But Crow had also been told a rumor that Black was looking at a certain actor for the other lead role, not Gosling. Uh, Although Crow in the interview, I've seen him mention this in two different interviews and he never says who the other actor was. Uh, But whoever it was, Crow just couldn't see this other guy in the role. And it felt so wrong to him that he was prepared to apologize to Black uh, for having him fly out to Australia and he was going to turn down the role during their meeting. But when they met, Black says, uh, you know, I've been talking to Ryan Gosling and, uh, you know, just as Gosling had always wanted to work with Crow, Crow had been hoping to one day work with Ryan Gosling and picturing Gosling in the role opposite him completely changed the way that Crow looked at the project. And he told Black, hey, if Ryan's doing it, I'll do it. So we've talked a little bit about them already, but I I just want to gush about how good these guys are for a minute. Yeah. Because uh, I think that w- there's a lot of great stuff about this movie. But number one, you know, they started writing the script starting with the characters. So you've got to get those characters right when you cast them. And this is, in my opinion, pitch perfect casting. Uh, first of all, I love the way they introduce the characters in the film. They both give them an introduction of, as if they're the star of their own movie, because uh, they both get these like hard boiled noir voiceovers when we first meet them. Yeah, uh, uh, which doesn't continue through the whole movie. It's not like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang where it's narrated the whole time. It's really just when we meet them. But then you've got Crow, who is you know he's playing kind of the straight man in this. Uh, he's he's very convincing as a guy who looks like he could beat the shit out of people for a living uh <laughs> but i think what's great about crow's performance here is watching how exasperated he always is at ryan gosling's just absolute buffoonery
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> i always yeah. picture them kind of how they are on screen like when they're talking about the uh deciding to get cast in the movie it's like gosling wants to do funny really bad yeah. and he likes the idea of of it and then like meanwhile crow's like very deadpan and says like i appreciate comedy but he never looks like he gets it or honestly cares and it works (laughs) and so i don't know i saw i saw like a little bit of that story you were talking about with crow he said he talks about the meeting with shane black about it he says uh he says it was kind of an embarrassing story he said that you know he got the pitch like you said and then he talked to his agent. They sent him the list and he he asked in the interview I was reading. He said, don't ask me to tell you who it
1: was He's i oh, say yeah. it would be unkind. Yeah. Uh, but he said... Good for uh, him though, honestly.
0: He said after he saw that he called and said, uh, listen, obviously this is not the project I thought it was. It's something else. I must have really wanted it to be something because I read too much into it. Don't express interest in this. And he said his agent told him, uh, Shea Black got on the plane five hours ago down to Australia to see you. <laughs> it's already so, on the way. <laughs> yeah. And he said... Okay, seriously? And he said, so I had a plan. He said, uh, I would invite him over to my house. I'm going to offer him a drink and cook him a steak. And halfway through, I'll say, you know, I thought about it. I thought it was something else. I'm sorry if I wasted your time. So he shows up. I said, hey, man, would you like a drink? He said, I don't drink. And he said, that was most of my plan. He, said, so he had to be drinking. That's the only way that was going to work. in order, So so he could hear what I had to say. And I, I said, what do you mean you don't drink? And he said, I'm allergic to alcohol. And I said, what do you mean you're allergic to alcohol? And he said, yeah, you know, like I have this issue where one drink and I break out in handcuffs. <laughs> and he was like, I thought to myself, that's funny. So I said, okay, look, we got a bit of a problem. I got to tell you something. And Shane Black says, can I go first? And I said, all right, fine. You go first. And he says, Ryan Gosling and he says what what are you talking about he said Ryan Gosling I had a meeting with him right before I got to the airport he knows it's going to be you he wants you to play the other character what do you think he's like all right how do you want your steak and he
1: said we were on track (laughs) that's it that's all it took." (laughs) I love that I love that these guys just wanted to work with each other and Gosling is I mean it's it sounds like hyperbole but Gosling is a revelation in this movie I mean, I'm a big fan of Ryan Gosling. I was already a big fan of Ryan Gosling before this. I think Drive, which came out 2010, right? 2010, so a few years before this. That's when I truly probably became like a Ryan Gosling fan. But nothing he had done prior to this could prepare me for how goddamn funny he is in this movie. Yeah. Like, like it's a great performance, not just because it's unexpected coming from Gosling, but I think that this is legitimately like one of the... Funniest, or at least one of my favorite comedic performances, period, of all time. Because it's like, first of all, Gosling is perfect for the material. He he's able to rattle off black snappy dialogue just as good as Robert Downey Jr. does and kiss, kiss, bang, bang, which yeah. not a lot of not a lot of actors could do. Uh and he plays drunk better than just about anyone I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, I mean, the thing that you you were parodying in your uh, intro, Todd, is that scene kills me. But every time he's drunk on screen, it is so funny to me. Yeah. Uh, but without singing, seeming like cartoony, like it seems right. realistic uh, and just very funny. Uh, and his physical comedy is amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. you mentioned the, that, one, that little scene with, where he's breaking the window, but you've also got like, the, the scene in the bathroom where he's in the bathroom <laughs> stall that is like an all-timer that he is
3: that trying to trying to manipulate the magazine the gun his pants the, the door. door yeah
1: <laughs> and it keeps wanting to close on him yeah. and also the like his tumble <laughs> off of when he's drunk at the party and his tumble off of the balcony yeah. uh, that whole scene on the balcony is great honestly and let's not forget the best scream in movie history possibly <laughs> <laughs> when, when he gets his arm broken <laughs> yeah <laughs> he is just like Incredible.
0: Ryan had a story about like he says the first day they worked together was uh, the bathroom stall scene. And he said he got to the set early to try to work on the door thing. And uh he said I was like working it out and I thought I was by myself, and all of a sudden I smell smoke and I look behind the door and Russell Crowe's sitting in there and he's uh he's just like smoking a <laughs> cigarette and he's watching me and he very seriously at deadpan says, I think if you hit the door with the other leg, it'll bounce back farther. And he said, <laughs> and I was like, I think this is gonna work. Just something about that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> think this
1: will... That's great. I love uh, that.
0: bagarotti <laughs> like talks about like uh that they he says Ryan and Russell came in and the way they interacted, he said when we were like do the table reads, we were like, We gotta change this, like we gotta change things around them. And so they were like constantly rewriting stuff because they he said him and Shane would like look at each other and be like, damn, Ryan is way funnier than we thought he was going to be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then they found uh, Andrew Rice or whatever, but I know we'll talk about casting. He said, for the first couple of days of shooting, he said, I was watching Ryan, and the first day of shooting was when he, he also, he, he says, was the scene where they go to the back of the bar and try to smash through the window and he cuts his wrist. And he did the state with the blood and he fell over. And I was like, he's. Fucking doing Peter Sellers now. Uh huh. It was like, I thought, I said, all I could picture with him was the drive dude. Mm-hmm. And so he said that Russell just like picked up everything immediately. And he said, every day that was our job. Like we would just rewrite something because these guys were like making something up as they went.
1: Yeah. For a guy who is such like a writer. Uh, from what I've heard, Shane Black actually allows a surprising amount of improv on set as well. So after spending you know 13 years or so in development hell, the nice guys all kind of snapped into place in the span of about three days, uh, with both of the lead roles being filled, and and mostly because Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe just really wanted to work together. <laughs> it probably <laughs> also helped that Gosling and Crowe actually have the same agent uh, so that uh, probably made things a little bit easier but yeah. because these two guys these are two big movie stars you know because they had agreed to star in the film all the other pieces just began kind of falling into place and suddenly it becomes a hot commodity and finding studio funding was no longer an issue
0: there was an interview with IndieWire where shane black says uh hey it is shane black fashion uh he explains all this what we just did in like 10, 15 minutes and about 30 seconds. His exact quote in there (laughs) is, uh, is they're like, how did it come together? And he's like, there's no concrete idea other than a love for old school detective thrillers and unsung heroes of the garish airport paperbacks from the 50s and 60s. They had all these half clad ladies perched on desks and guys in short sleeves with cigarette and loose shoulder holsters. My friend Anthony Bagarazzi and I concocted the script in 2001, was set to present it that day. It went nowhere. We tried it again as a TV show, went nowhere. Finally, in 2014, we put it out one last time, and Ryan Gosling looked at it with his agent and said, this is the thing I'm looking for. Within three days, Russell Crowe said, I like it too. And if Ryan's doing it, I'll do it. After 13 years, in three days, it was ready to be made.
1: Well, we should just let Shane Black (laughs) do this podcast. These uh, would be much shorter episodes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But but I, I wanted to say earlier too. I should, I should I keep forgetting to mention this. But they actually knew each other, Ryan and Russell Crowe. Uh, did they? Russell, yeah. Russell Crowe tells the story on they the had Ellen just show. They did not work with each other. Yeah, they hadn't worked with each other. He became a big fan. Russell Crowe, there's he he says, uh, him and his wife were having a binge night of watching Ryan Gosling movies, and he became a huge fan <laughs> of Ryan Gosling, and so. He reached out, probably through his agent, I guess, and he said he wanted to meet Ryan Gosling. So he invited him over to dinner, and he was going to invite Ryan and his girlfriend over to have dinner with him and his Cook wife. Took a
1: mistake. That's what he does.
0: Yeah, that's apparently his thing. <laughs> so uh, he got his contact info, invited him over, blah, blah, blah. And he said, uh, so they're going to have a couple's night, or so he thought. He said, apparently, when his wife found out that Ryan Gosling was coming over, she invited 12 girlfriends over and her mom. <laughs> So oh, that they geez. could meet Ryan Gosling. And, uh, he said he found out about it from her like a little before. And he said, well, I can't have a walk into a room with his girlfriend. And there's like 16 women. So I had to <laughs> rebalance it. I started calling blokes. I called Riza from the Wu-Tang Clan. I called Eli Roth. <laughs> <laughs> I called he's like he just started i started calling this person this person so ryan gosling walks into the room expecting this intimate dinner party and i got 30 people (laughs) (laughs) and he said i never got to explain that story to him until we were making the nice guys
1: that's great Well, the film was announced officially in June of 2014, and it wouldn't be long before other actors began to fill out the film's cast. Uh, Margaret Qualley and Angori Rice joined the film that September uh, with Matt Bomer, Keith David, Bo Knapp, and Kim Basinger joining in October. So there's a very good chance that we may have found a movie that actually has some Star Trek uh, cast members after the last couple months of uh, that not being possible, not right. only because Todd wasn't <laughs> here, but because the fu- Joe Dorowski movies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, I am proud to announce the return hey. of whom I'm trekking with, with hey, Mr. Todd man. A. Davis. There were no yeah. Mexican
0: prostitutes in Star Trek. <laughs>
1: so, oh, you'd be surprised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I would love it- if. If this like if we I just made that big grand announcement that uh, we're the return of whom I trekking with. Todd's like there's nobody in this one. <laughs> no, no, <nope>, sorry. <laughs> wow. No. Well, actually, there, what'd you there find, Todd? Few.
3: Yeah. Uh, so we've got right off the bat here we've got Mark Casimir Dinowitz Jr. and Sala Baker. Uh, both of them are in smaller uh, uncredited roles here uh, as a protester and a bodyguard, respectively. But they were also uncredited as a Klingon prisoner and drill tower Romulan, uh, respectively, in J.J. Abrams' Star Trek in 2009.
1: They're extras. Yeah, so they're extras. They're background players, yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
3: Uh, speaking of... People in the background. Uh, Gary Weeks, who plays Officer McMillan in uh, Nice Guys, did twelve episodes of Star Trek Enterprise in two thousand one, playing an uncredited engineer. So he's in the back turning a knob, probably. <laughs> beep,
1: beep,
2: beep. <laughs> yeah,
3: exactly.
1: <laughs> Pushing buttons. Yeah, yeah.
3: And then we've got uh, Gil Gerard, aka Buck Rogers, as Bergen Paulson. Uh, he was actually in an episode of Star Trek: Phase Two back in two thousand four as Admiral Shaheen um so that's everybody in star trek but i'm bump
1: he's the old guy with the mustache right and in, in, yes. in this movie yeah the, yes. the car auto industry guy
3: yeah yeah yeah
1: gotcha gotcha so it's easy you know when you're talking about the cast here as we just were it, it's easy to gush about how good gosling and crow are in this movie but the rest of the cast is also really solid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this is a movie where Keith fucking David plays a nameless hitman. I think he's credited as older gentleman. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and like in any other movie, this would just be some forgettable dude, some actor you don't recognize or you know haven't heard of. But here, it becomes an incredible character because it's. Keith fucking Davis <laughs> this is Keith David. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the same goes Reu- for Matt-
0: reuniting with Russell Crowe from the quick of the dead.
1: That's right. Yep. Yeah, uh, yeah you're exactly right. And the same goes for, uh, I think Matt Bomer, uh, John boy, uh, the hitman that he plays. Yeah. His character, you know, he's mentioned several times, but you don't actually see him until what the last half an hour of the movie, maybe like the last act. Mm-hmm. And Bomer uses his kind of natural charm to create a, Honestly, truly terrifying character who yeah. also looks cool as hell in this like three piece suit. He's got one leather glove on and he's a big ass machine gun. He just is is very intimidating and very yeah. like menacing because he plays it cool the whole time. It's a great character mm-hmm. uh, that, that you know is really just a very small part, but is very memorable. And let's not forget the films, the the film's real MVP, which is Angori Rice who plays Holly March. Uh, because I think writing kids is hard. It's very tricky. Most screenwriters, I think, do a horrible job at it. Most child actors, I think, are insufferable but Black's got a knack for it. I mean he he started writing good believable kid roles probably back in the last Boy Scout where uh with Daniel Harris's character who plays uh Bruce Willis's kid in that remember uh, right, she, right. that's a that's a well-written like kid character and he did it again in Iron Man 3 with Ty Simpkins character which that you know the lonely kid that befriends Iron Man that could have been horrible (laughs) like that's on paper that sounds like it could be horrible but it's really good in the movie and ty simpkins is really good and and he he shows up again here he's the kid at the beginning who finds misty mountains yeah uh, yeah in in the first scene that's ty simpkins too so
0: i I was gonna mention him and he also worked with russell
1: crowe apparently in like uh the next three days i think i said that was later oh Uh, oh yeah i don't know yeah i remember that movie i can't remember when it came out but i think Black does that again here with Holly, and I, I think it's because he doesn't write down to kids. I was gonna, uh, I was
3: about to say, I would be surprised if he, when he goes into it, thinking like, Oh, I'm writing a kid, I think right. he's just writing another, another character. character, he's writing just it just like be he would by a kid, yeah,
1: exactly. He writes it just like he would any other character, uh, and I think that's what's great about it. He doesn't give them stupid kid dialogue, mm. uh, nobody's going like, Now this is pod racing or any <laughs> dumb shit like that. <laughs> <laughs>
3: You say, no problemo.
1: (laughs) Yes, that's an example of somebody who does not know how to write for kids is James Cameron. (laughs) That's the other end of the spectrum for what we're talking about here, right? Uh, (laughs) Like Black just knows how to do it. He's not trying to make them sound cool or anything. He just writes like he normally writes. Uh, But and it helps that. He, he cast a great actress in the role because obviously that's the other part of that equation. And, and Holly is a great character. I mean, she is, for one, she's kind of a badass. I mean, she does better detective work than her dad. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like his chauffeur and she's his secretary because he's such a fuck up. Uh, and, you know, but she also does things like you know she she tries to get she tries to hire Healy to beat up her friend Janet uh because <laughs> Janet sucks uh and she gets great moments like the the uh one where she throws the cold coffee on the girl mm-hmm. uh, uh at, at the end of the movie that's a great moment a great character moment but Holly is also kind of the movie's like moral center yes. because it, like Healy and March we'll get into this more when we have our discussion towards the end of the episode but Healy and March are uh they're kind of broken men and there's, they've been so broken and beaten down by life that they don't really care that much about helping people. I mean, the movie's called the nice guys, ironically, right? Like Healy beats people up for a living and March up like cons old women out of money. Like they're not nice dudes. Uh, And they say that multiple times in the movie, like where he, he'll actually ask Holly, am I a bad person? And she's like, yeah. Yes, you are. Yes, yes, you are. Uh, and he is. He's not he's not a good dad. He's a bad detective. He's a bad dad. He's been letting his daughter down for years. Uh, and then when Healy you know, starts to get to know them and then he lies to Holly about killing. A, I think he's credited as Blueface in the yeah. movie. I think it's what the character is called Blueface, the guy that gets the things that gets he gets hit by a van and then. Healy kills him and and he lies to Holly about that and she knows he's lying. So he's kind of letting her down too. So a lot of the movie is really about these two kind of broken men trying to redeem themselves in the eyes of this little girl. Who's the only like really like good person in the whole movie, to be honest.
2: Mm.
0: You can really get the sense that like shade black. And I think I've heard him say this in some interviews I was watching or something, but basically he loves the idea about having to find yourself in a moral forest basically Mm -hmm. he says or whether everything wants to like weigh you down with like what is morality and what is okay and you know and all that stuff and Mm -hmm. and all that it seems like he finds that in in like the eyes of a kid you know like that a kid is a good person and knows how to like reflect that so even in iron man 3 you know with with ty simpkins and robert downey jr
1: yeah it's a it's a really great dynamic that i think he does better than just about Just about anyone else.
0: Mm. I think the only other casting thing I wanted to mention was, uh, you know, Kim Basinger in there is uh, this is not the first time she worked with Russell Crowe. They worked together in LA. Oh, LA confidential.
1: Yeah. I didn't even, I didn't even put that together until you just started saying that, but that's a great movie. Another great. And
0: There was an interview with Russell Crowe on the uh, Howard Stern show where he talks about working with her and just how, how weird the business is, you know, that he hadn't seen her since then really, but that,
1: that was like twenty you know, years earlier almost probably.
0: You know, he he's he's often said LA Confidential was the only movie he had ever wanted to have a sequel or that he would like to play the character again. And then now because of this this movie, he uh he turned you know, he he decided this movie was that. Now it was like it's almost like this character could have been his character in LA Confidential, like a couple of decades later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is who he, he turns into. There's yeah. like some similar there's some similar characteristics between them, mm-hmm. like just being grumpy or like an
1: overprotective of girls. And I think like, he uses right. a bat to beat people up in that movie, if I if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and he's always tried to be like smarter, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. I don't
1: know. Anyway, it's just interesting. That is interesting. I, I completely forgot that they were both in that movie, but that's an incredible film that I haven't seen in a very long time. Yeah, I could see Shane Black having seen that and thought of that. Yeah, and, that know. might be a good... That that would honestly not be a bad further viewing uh choice for this movie.
0: It was not in my list, but that's a good point. I should have saved no. it.
1: <laughs> well, with a cast in place, it was time to start filming the nice guys. and And a fact that might surprise a lot of folks is that despite being set in Los Angeles where, you know, a lot of movies are made, obviously, and telling a story that's very like Los Angeles based. Uh, the film was actually made in uh, Georgia. It was filmed in Atlanta and neighboring Decatur, Georgia. Hmm. Now, why I, I couldn't find why that was, although I do know that the reason that Marvel films a lot of movies there is because Georgia has great tax breaks when it comes to making movies there. Uh, so it probably has something to do with that. Uh, but as you can imagine, this kind of presents a challenge. Like, how does one transform modern day Atlanta? into 1970s LA. Well, the guy who had to solve this problem was production designer, Richard Bridgeland. So while scouting locations in Atlanta, Bridgeland would, he'd first have to find suitable buildings, like ones that would fit in not only in the 1970s, but on the West coast, and then imagine them without trees because, you know, Atlanta, if you haven't been there, if you've never visited Atlanta, like it's full of green trees, whereas LA has a stark desert look. So, this could have been like, this could have easily been like a, a Halloween 78 situation where it's set in Illinois, but you've got palm trees in the background if you look close enough, you know. But uh, luckily in 2016, when they're making this movie, they had the option to digitally remove. The trees and posts, so they, so that wasn't really an issue. He just had to kind of picture the locations as if the trees weren't there, and then they were going to take them out. So Bridgeland extensively starts researching 1970s Los Angeles. He used old Super 8 films and documentary photos. Uh, he actually used classic 70s designers for the film's furniture, like it's very period accurate stuff. In fact, like the the round table that you see in Sid Shattuck's house is specifically based on Hugh Hefner's bed in the Playboy Mansion from the 70s. (laughs) Like, it is an exact replica of that. Uh, But speaking of Sid house, Bridgeland and his team found a house that was owned by a hip-hop producer based in Atlanta named Dallas Austin.
3: Uh, But I, you know, in the small bit of research I do, I actually found that when they started talking with Dallas Austin, they actually had to deal with his business partner first, uh, Fort Worth Lubbock, yes. and his girlfriend at the time, Corpus Christi, Houston.
1: Wow. So, That's, wow, this is why you. This is why we bring you onto the show, Todd, for these uh, this type of material
3: available <laughs> for parties, bar mitzvahs, <laughs> corporate
0: events. Uh, uh, hopefully, as funny, but. Not made up like Todd's. Uh I did <laughs> want to know more about Dallas Austin. And uh he's married to uh TLC's Chili. Uh oh. so good for him. Oh. Yeah. But he is a, you know huge producer, obviously. Uh, but this was my favorite little story I saw about him. Uh he helped the bulk of debut albums for Motown sighies when he first got started, including Another Bad Creation and Boys to Men. Oh. Um when he got the call to come back to work on boys to Men two, that super famous album with like, I'll make love to you and yeah, all that yeah. other shit out there. Yeah. Uh, he said, if you make me do that, I'm going to sue everybody and hung up the phone. And <laughs> uh, no, he, 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 that was him and his secretary. His secretary said that and hung up the phone and they didn't understand why, but uh, they found out that he thought that boys to Men were just too fucking arrogant. They were uh, just ridiculous. It, he didn't like them. Uh, He was on a radio show. DJ Vlad asked Austin why he only produced one song on the boys to mid second album. He said it was because I don't like them. (laughs) He said in turn, this was uh, they had become vain since their success had begun. Paraphrasing them, emphasizing costly tangibles with statements such as they said, man, I can't finish counting all the diamonds in my Rolex right now. And (laughs) we got to let somebody win referring to music industry awards. So good thing we're not there. <laughs>
1: wow, <laughs> yeah, they. Uh, I mean, he he. If you look at the list of stuff that he produced, it's a lot of well-known stuff, including. I mean, he he produced songs by TLC, like he did. Creep was was probably the the one that I recognized the most, but uh, you know, a lot of songs by Madonna, Janet Jackson, uh, people like that, uh, in, including Boys to Men. So he it probably wasn't
0: the first time that house had seen a party
1: right exactly exactly so this uh this house that they found that was owned by dallas austin it was actually the design of the house was based on a house in los angeles uh that's known as Silvertop, which was designed by a legendary architect named john lautner Uh, if you don't know anything about architecture which i wouldn't assume that a lot of people do but john lautner is a a incredibly well-known uh mid-century like A mid century modern style architect, uh, he, he studied like under Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, if go look up pictures of Silvertop, it's an incredible looking house. Uh, and the thing is, it, it it kind of, um, you know, Dallas Austin's house is sitting in like the suburbs of Atlanta, you know, whereas Dallas Austin's house is, or I'm sorry, whereas the original John Lautner house. Overlooks Los Angeles, like those that that big wall of round windows on the front of the house, like overlooks it's up in the, the Hollywood Hills, overlooking oh, Los wow. Angeles. So it was designed to have like a panoramic view of the city. It's pretty incredible looking if you go, uh, go look it up. So for the location of the LA Auto Show that we see at the end of the movie, that's another location in Atlanta. That was actually, uh, Bridgeland actually repurposed Atlanta's Hilton Hotel, which I have passed by a hundred times. And had no idea that it was the hotel from this movie Uh, because the, the Hilton hotel, it's right downtown Atlanta. It has been, it was built in the late seventies and it had never really been renovated on the outside. Like it still had a very seventies feel to its architecture. So they just kind of, uh, used it as is, but they did board over the hotel's tennis courts uh, for the opening night party, like where you see the cars out, like on the on the things spinning around out front. Yeah. That's on the the tennis courts behind the hotel. Uh, oh. They just they just boarded over everything and the swimming pools too, I believe.
0: God bless guys like this. You know they don't get yeah. enough
1: credit. Yeah, I agree. That's why I like to talk about guys like you know we've talked about production designers before, but they don't get a, a, is enough credit because. I think a lot of people, and I used to think this way, that a production designer was like the guy designing the sets or the rooms that people were in, but that's not entirely true. and We we may have talked this, about this on a previous episode. I can't remember, but, you know, like we said, we, we do always like to sing the praises of what we call the below-the-line technicians. Those are the guys who are not the director or not the actor, basically. Everyone else, we everyone besides the director and the actors, I feel like, don't get enough credit on movies. So we like to sing their praises, uh, but a production designer is the person who designs kind of the overall look of the film. They're the person that's hiring the set designers and the costume designers and everyone else who has a hand in how every scene kind of looks. They work very closely with the, the with the cinematographer, uh, but they kind of have the final say on the look of the film. So while I'm focusing a lot on the sets here, uh, and that's mostly because I found a really great interview with Bridgland in Architectural Digest, uh, where he's specifically talking about his work on this film. Uh, but there are a lot of other elements in the films uh, of the film's visual look that Bridgland was responsible for. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, like when you're in Sid Shattuck's house, for instance, uh, the photos and posters and magazines that we see everywhere, like on the wall or just set dressing. Uh, for those, Bridge Bridget was responsible for those because they're set dressing. So he hired a veteran of the adult industry, a photographer named Arnie Freytag, who had worked for Playboy. He started in the mid-70s, all the way through, I think his last photo shoot was in 2012. So he worked oh, wow. for, yeah. So he worked for Playboy for a long time. And at one time was one of only two photographers at Playboy who shot the centerfold photos. And I gotta tell you guys, I um just purely out of research, I decided to look up some Arnie Freytag <laughs> uh-huh. photographs to, to uh-huh. see it. His work is very good. So, <laughs> yeah,
3: <laughs> he, he stared at it for uh, two to two and a half minutes at a time, with th- thirty seconds or so at a time. Oh, okay, all right. All right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of all I have about. um the the filming of the nice guys that's kind of the extent of the information i was able to find uh as we will discuss the film was not very successful at the box office so when warner brothers released it on dvd and blu-ray they didn't really invest any in any uh extensive behind the scenes featurettes like there's no commentary or any kind of real making of featurettes uh there are a couple of like really short i'm talking like five or six minute EPKs that don't really offer any real information or insight into the making of the film because that's not what EPKs are made for. They're made to promote the film. What is an EPK? Uh, electronic press kit. Okay. Uh... I didn't know that. So it's the it's the shit that they send to entertainment tonight for clips uh, gotcha. of interviews gotcha. from the set of the film. That's an EPK. Uh so that's really all that you see on the the nice guy's Blu-ray. It's kind of sad, honestly. Uh there aren't any books. There's a there's a script, a screen book that is credited to Shane Black, but it doesn't even have the whole script in it. And it has very little insight into the screenwriting process. A little bit of the screenwriting process I talked about is from that, but most of it's not. Um, uh, however, one thing I did kind of gather from watching various interviews and reading various interviews with Gosling and Crow as they were promoting the film uh, is that, It's very clear that everyone seemed to be having a really good time while they made this movie. Like, it just seemed like a fun time. So there aren't a lot of, like, crazy stories from the set.
3: If you're out there and you still think that, oh, that, yeah, but that doesn't really matter. We're focused on the story. We're focused on the characters, yada, yada, yada. How many times have you watched a period piece that takes place in the, you know, 40s or 50s, and way in the back, there's a 94- honda accord or like, and it just <laughs> takes you out of the film yeah. or you know you spot something that's a western and you spot a modern convenience of some
1: a of wristwatch some, or something yeah, yeah you
3: spot a wristwatch or something like that uh, that it's a like justin said it is a it is a fine art and if it's not if it's done perfectly you shouldn't notice it at all
1: yeah it should feel like you're you're within that time period exactly uh, it's, it's especially hard on a on a period piece. Yeah. Uh, even if it's, you know, the seventies not and, and not something set like in the 1800s or whatever, right. uh, even if it's the seventies, every car has to be different. Every, every element on every building in the background has to be period accurate. I mean, there are, there, I said that this was filmed in Atlanta, but there are some exteriors that they filmed in LA. I mean, you know, Russell Crowe's character lives on top of the comedy store, which is a famous location in Los Angeles. So they filmed right. those exteriors there, but the interiors were filmed still primarily in atlanta
0: yeah
3: yeah it's it's awesome
0: you have to love what you do with that kind of stuff i would imagine um and there and like you said everybody was having a ton of fun making it and they were going all in from everything you can read about this so like going back to give some of the behind the scenes folks credit uh as well as the stars like uh a lot of the stunt workers and such in this movie were people that had worked on like Iron Man 3 and some other Shane Black stuff. So I'm not 100% sure on how much pull Shane has with that, but it seems like he could pull crew from other movies if he can, or he remembers them at least. Uh, yeah. But I, I mentioned before that, that Gosling was into the comedy aspect, especially the physical comedy aspect. So he was doing a lot of his own stunts in this movie, per him. He said in one interview, uh, I did most of that. The physical comedy element was a big draw for me. I grew up on those films. It's something I always wanted to do, so I wanted to make sure that I did all those things. But I did have a great stunt guy. I actually wanted to give him a little bit of a break, too, because he'd just come off the set of Fury where he was impaled by his best friend. And uh, (laughs) so the stunt guy he's referring to, I looked into this and dug this up. It's a guy named Brett Prade, who is Gosling stunt double in the movie but apparently he would booked this gig already and was coming from the set of Fury where he was Brad Pitt's stunt double mm-hmm. and in that movie there's a scene where bodies are all in this field and a soldier is walking around checking them to make sure they're dead Uh and in this case it was uh Prade's uh, best friend <laughs> anyway or at least until this point he's stabbing the <laughs> bodies with a bayonet to check them If oh, and uh, a lot of the bodies are dummies but Prade's friend either already thought he was a dummy or just made this mistake this once and stabbed him right through the chest. Oh, no. no. no my oh, my God. <laughs> oh, wow. And uh, per Gosling, he said, quote, he said, two weeks later, this guy was on our set ready to get down, so I had to do a lot of these stunts because what kind of a person am I if I get Brent <laughs> to do these things? He's got a <laughs> and, hole in uh, his body. <laughs> yeah, and, and he thought he'd get pushback from Crow, but Crow was like, yeah, mate, that's how we do because apparently Crow is notorious for this on sets. Uh Gosling says he's done so many stunts that as soon as the read-through ended for the movie, Russell was sketching something. And I went over it, it was a blueprint for the hot tub. And he immediately took it over to Shane to talk about how the dimensions of the hot tub weren't going to allow for the scene that had been written. And uh so <laughs> he went immediately into stunt mode. So I thought that was funny, and I started looking into Crow's stunts. Uh, and it's less so now. He says uh, in one interview, he says, quote, because the older I get, the less it's just physically possible. I remember when I was a young fella doing all my stunts and the occasional older actor would go, why are you doing that? Why don't you let the stunt guys do it? And he's like, now that I'm the older guy, I'm like, that was a piece of kindness and wisdom that just missed me at the time. Because (laughs) you do start stacking up stuff. He's like, I've got this embarrassing thing where I've got one scar on my body that is from something other than a film set. Every other scar than that is by from something on a film set. I've got no cartilage in my toes. uh, That's from doing a bunch of lateral stops. I've got grade four tears in both Achilles tendons. I've got shin splits. I've got bald marrow edemas under both knees. I've got a disintegrating hip. I got a rib in my upper thoracic that pops off my spine, which is very unpleasant in the morning when that happens. This is Russell Crowe? Yeah. He said I had two operations on my left shoulder. (laughs) And so. Jeez. um, Lord. He says, uh, "Yeah." He said, "The cool part. For, uh, I mean, the cool po- the cool part for Crow in this one is that he's backed in this movie by a guy named Gary Ray Stearns, who has been a stunt and/or fight coordinator in like fucking everything. We're talking. L- listen to this resume. So I wrote down some of these. Says starting, uh, starting with TV. His first gig was Walker Texas Ranger that he was in Buffy Angel Alias." All the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, he doubled Hugo Weaving and Matrix Reloaded and the next one, did uncredited stuff for both Kill Bills, worked on Spider-Man 2, uncredited work on Indiana Jones' Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, went to the Amazing Spider-Man, doubled Jack Reacher, did the Olympus' Fallen stuff, he met Crow on Noah, he did Amazing Spider-Man 2 before coming over to the nice guys. Uh, he was the stunt coordinator on the Netflix Marvel shows, and those are the highlights. Like, this guy's in like four things in between each thing I just wow.
1: said. Uh, well, anyway, I mean, I love the
0: stunt workers because they remind me of our wrestlers, and some yeah. of them are the wrestlers, so yeah, some <laughs> of them
1: are. And I, I just looked up Brett Praed on, um, uh, his resume and the, the guy who was doubling for Ryan Gosling and that dude's got a hell of a resume too. I mean, he was also in the matrix, the first matrix and the most recent matrix he's in several of the mission impossible movies. We know how stunt heavy those are. He was in, um, he followed, I guess he followed uh Gosling from nice guys to La La land. He was his stunt double in that too. And he was also a dr- a stunt driver in the greatest, stunt car movie of all time which is mad max fury road oh he's one of the stunt drivers in that yeah so he's got a hell of a resume i mean there's there's a lot of other stuff i could i could name but uh those were just a couple of the highlights that stood out to me but i mean he's he he is a hell of a stunt man it looks like yeah these guys are legit man and uh i mean i guess the nice guys was
0: hopefully a little bit of a day off for him since uh gosling apparently like to get beat up too
1: but yeah. Well, the Nice Guys was scheduled for a summer release in 2016. Uh, it was originally scheduled to be released in mid-June, but Warner Brothers ended up moving its release date up to May 20th, giving its original June 17th date to the Dwayne Johnson, Kevin Hart vehicle, Central Intelligence. Oh,
0: well, it's a good thing it. it's out of the way, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's no, I, I did want to mention, too, I love this about the release of the movie is like, you know, they their stuff. Obviously, they they lean into the 70s thing. Once they go with it, it opens with like that 70s Warner Brothers logo. Yeah, the logo. And, yeah. Oh, I yeah. love an old logo, man. <laughs> uh but in 2014, the same studio had done like Inherent Vice or something, and they did this too. But they did like a 70s style trailer. And, it's a uh, great trailer. Like yeah. Betamax stuff in there mm-hmm. and the crackle and the audio. And uh, I think this one even did like an introducing credit for Kim Basinger.
1: Uh, that's kind of cool that's fun well during its opening weekend the film grossed uh just 11.3 million dollars at the box office which made it uh, come in fourth place behind two other new releases uh which were neighbors 2 and the angry birds movie and then uh it was also behind captain america civil war which by then was in its third week of release so it's hard to say exactly why The Nice Guys failed to do business at the box office. I mean, it had two well-known stars in the lead. It had a snappy marketing campaign, great posters, that great 70s-style trailer that you mentioned. Uh, the But the truth is probably that The Nice Guys should not have been released during the summer blockbuster season. I mm-hmm. mean, honestly. Uh, mm-hmm. While there's probably not a whole lot of audience crossover between The Nice Guys and the Angry Birds movie, uh, a lot of the film's key demographic namely adults, were probably either seeing Neighbors 2, which was a sequel to a successful R-rated comedy, or they were just seeing Captain America Civil War. Regardless, despite good reviews, the film never really gained much traction, so even good word of mouth could not save it. And in its second week of release, it brought in uh, an additional $6.5 million, dropped down to seventh place at the box office by week two and it would ultimately bring in just 59 million dollars worldwide on a budget of two, uh, a budget of 50 million effectively killing any immediate plans for a sequel and it's a shame because 20 years ago i think this would have been an absolute smash hit uh, it would have been a blockbuster i think if it had been released at the right time i think it could have even done well had it not been released in the summertime if this this had been released in like march or in like August, yeah, I mean, like at the end of the summer, you yeah. know, where, where, stuff like this d- tends to do a little bit better. Uh, but these days, if it's a movie aimed at adults, that's not based on some pre-existing IP or based on something people already recognize, nobody really gives a shit. Um, I do, I do think that w- it's gotten a little bit better since 2016 uh, with recent movies like RRR and, you know, the recent Oscar winner, everything everywhere all at once becoming hit. So it, maybe we're making some progress as far as that goes. But the fact is that in 2016 like people just didn't go see this movie and that's a shame. I mean, I think that people not seeing The Nice Guys is the second worst decision that Americans made in 2016. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's fair. <laughs> the film's poor, poor performance was not due to the quality of the film. I mean, that's for certain. Uh critics for the most part love the film and it currently sits at a pretty impressive 91% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes Uh, now this is the part Gary where I pass it off to you to do somebody needs a nap and I thought about it when we were doing when I was writing this and I was like man every movie we talk about I can I can imagine somebody not liking this movie it's really hard for me to imagine anybody not enjoying themselves watching the nice guys it's just such a fun movie but the internet never ceases to surprise me so let's hear what you got (laughs) (laughs)
0: Man, I am so glad you said that because you just made a joke right before this. That was very good, by the way, and it had not hit me until exactly at that joke. What's going on with these reviews? And around the time of 2016, the worst decision that happened was uh, you could argue like what specifically was it. But America was divided uh, at this time. And then there became some extreme camps in those divisions. And all of those people saw the nice guys and they wrote reviews about it and they all hate it for one reason or another. <laughs> they, so it's, uh, it's, you know, it's QAnon uh, threatening uh, with pedophilia or it's uh, because of white, straight men and their misogyny. So it's one or the other, but yes, there's plenty of people who saw this movie that now need to go take a nap. <laughs> So here we go. Uh, first review is a half star from Mora, who says, This reads like what straight men might think camp is, but in the most horrendous way. Had the urge to rip my eyes out after maybe five minutes watching, but managed to hit the one hour mark until I decided that this was really absolutely not worthy of my time. You know... With the Blade Runner sequel, at least it had some great visuals from time to time. This is just men and misogyny veiled in self awareness.
1: Is that going to be a recurring theme here, the misogyny thing? I think so. I, it...
0: I, I some of the stuff repeated so much that I honestly skipped it. So I, when I said pedophilia and misogyny were both prominent features of reviews, there were plenty more that I'm ever going to get to mention here because pedophilia. I try not to spend an hour. Yeah, we'll okay. get there. All right. Uh, Actually, we'll get there now. Here's uh, Chris saying, disturbing film in unsuitable roles for minors. The story is a mess and not very funny, but what surprised my husband and I the most were the 12 to 13 children in a film about a porn star. Maybe they mean 12 to 13 year old children. Uh, In a film about a porn star and the parts they played. It was pretty sick why would any parent allow a child to be in a film about porn with nudity and sex and add to the sexuality of the film a female porn star suddenly dies and a prepubescent boy finds the naked woman later a young boy asks crow and gosling if they'd like to see his big dick it was creepy gosling's 13 year old daughter in the film goes to a party where naked women dance and swim in an aquarium and where the daughter is caught watching a porn film the dad gosling doesn't even care I'm not a prude, but this suggests child promiscuity. What is wrong with Hollywood to put out such twisted, perverted films? <laughs> you,
1: they say you're you say you're not a prude, but <laughs> it so, sounds like you're a prude. Also, the kid, the uh, you guys want to see my dick? That kid is hilarious. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, it's a hilarious scene, and that kid is that kid's delivery is so funny.
0: Also, we know a kid like that. His name's Todd Davis. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, Zombie Mockingbird is a hot mess. When I first started, I thought it was going to be a kind of quirky buddy movie. And even though I don't like Russell Crowe or Ryan Gosling, I decided to give it a go. Short time later, I was questioning how on earth Ryan Gosling's character got custody of his 13-year-old daughter. She doesn't appear to go to school and pretty much runs around by herself with absolutely no supervision of any kind. Not long after that, after a porn party, which Gosling allowed his daughter to attend, again, unsupervised, while he got drunk and did nothing remotely intelligent, I turned it off wondering why anybody would waste their time watching it. None of it actually makes any sense whatsoever. This is really pathetic.
1: That person was clearly not paying attention to the movie, uh, because he doesn't gosling's character doesn't like get custody, his wife is dead, which is a major plot point of the movie. And Holly does isn't allowed to come to the porn party or whatever they call it. She sneaks her way in there. Uh, and even and then he even finds out she's there, tries to send her home, and then she she uh, decides to sneak in instead of getting in the taxi. So that person wasn't even paying attention to the movie. <sighs> uh, TD says, uh, I wish I had my money back in two
0: hours of my life from all the positive reviews. I was looking forward to this film boy. What a letdown wish my wife and I had walked out a little earlier and enjoyed a day at the park or maybe a cat video. Acting is over the top by the two pros in quotation marks, and everybody else is annoyingly bad. I would love to know the age and film going experience of reviewers who love this trash little film. Have they not seen classic films from the last 75 years or so and have a point of reference? Have review standards really slipped this far? I almost feel sorry for Russell Crowe having to endure this. I wasted a couple of hours and $18. Crowe spent months on this humorless exercise Hope you lost a little weight in the process. It was well compensated. Save your money and your time. Wow. And and we're body shaming Russell Crowe. And we're body shaming Russell Crowe. Jeez. <laughs> uh, Jim says, uh, not fit for human consumption. Uh, he gave it one star. It says, one's higher than I would give it. Why two talented actors would lower themselves to be a part of trash like this is beyond me. It probably boils down to the parts they played and anything for a buck. If there is any redeeming quality to this picture, it's that we had the opportunity to walk out and took it. The sad part is that I actually had to pay to see it. It was humorless. It was vulgar. It was profane, poorly acted, terrible storyline. Russell Crowe looked like a blip. I feel sorry for the young actress who had to endure being part of a low-life movie. I guess that's what
1: floats for entertainment today. That's like the third one that's called it humorless. Uh, which is insane to me. That's also like the third one where the person has walked out of the movie and not even finished it and still decided to review it. And that's the second one in a row that has body shamed Russell Crowe. What the fuck is wrong with these people? Like, Let's keep a tally. <laughs> if this was a
0: YouTube show, we'd have to make graphics for this. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the Joe Bob. <laughs> like, right? The... <laughs> Here's Fiona who says, how can anybody actually like this? I came here to see what people thought of The Nice Guys as I honestly thought it was about the worst film I've ever seen. (laughs) Wow, there it is. (laughs) I was simply staggered by all the positive reviews I've seen. I gather it's supposed to be funny, but not once did I even smile. Imagine that. I also know it's supposed to be referring back to other films, but it did it so badly that it was crass. What were they thinking? This script is dreadful. Ryan Gosling was almost impossible to hear at times, and the only decent acting in it came from the young girl playing his daughter, Andrew Rice. How this could get any positive reviews is beyond me. Normally, I find that I can rely on sites for films worth seeing, but this time, I totally disagree. This was not worth the price of popcorn, let alone the price of a ticket.
1: These people are mad about having to pay for this movie
0: they are angry i'm telling you this was a weirdly even more so that Podorowski. we got some great bad reviews uh Trembless says stupid awful waste of time i really do not know the reason of existence of this movie what of this moments what of this moments you want to log in to save everybody else's time what of the stupidest movies i've ever seen no reason for watching i saw it because of the actors and wasted every minute of my life The plot, stupid. The funny part, stupid. Trying to find some lies to describe my waste of time in order to enter a review. But I cannot. Such a pity for my time. If you have enough free time to waste, go for a walk. Or take your neighbor's dog for a walk. I don't like anything in this movie.
1: They are so mad about it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Here's another good one. How about Adele, who says, seriously, worst movie ever. Oh, no. (laughs) No joke, this is a really bad movie. Although the movie features A-list actors, the acting is D-list at best. Awful casting, worse dialogue. There's no flow, tons of plot holes, ridiculous, and not in a good way. I'd say this ranks in the top five of the worst movies ever made. This director mashes together scenes that leave you wondering, what the fuck? I started to feel embarrassed for the actors and filmmaker. The only saving grace of this film was seeing Gosling's handsome face. Crow, who was once a movie star hunk, is now just a hunk of chub. Wow, they did it again. (laughs) I am baffled how anybody can give this movie more than one star. Don't waste your time. You said that was Adele? Adele. Yeah, I same. wish you
1: I wish you would have uh, <laughs> read it in her voice.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Hello from the reviewer side. Um, um, bold aqua tomato. How does this waste of time and money have such a high rating? People are idiots. Hooray for mindless violence and four letter words that pass for humor. You know, the Soviet Union had expert boards that decided if a film was good enough to show it to the audience. The Soviet cinema was the best in the history of cinema. Film studios should think about that. I just didn't know where that one was
1: going. That that, that was a ride.
0: (laughs) I also don't know for certain which side of the island comes from. (laughs) Lil Pest says evil trash, nothing but glorification and advertisement for smoking. The sort of filth that should not be possible to exist. How did nobody stop this?
1: (laughs) What? (laughs) I don't know.
0: This person says, nope, couldn't make it through the first 15 minutes. In that 15 minutes... (laughs) A little boy is looking at porn, then gets to see that same female he's oogling in real life, but naked, of course. Then a little girl is acting seductive towards a grown-ass man to smoke weed, normalizing perversion, as if it's normalized too much in Hollywood. No thanks, Holly Weird. Keep your pedotude to
1: yourself. First of all, Ty Simpkins is like 15 in this, and every 15-year-old boy is looking at porn if you're not in the room with them. <laughs> I mean, that's just <laughs> that's just the fact. And... The the scene the other scene she's talking about is the the girl who you know she she's like dating or whatever a thirty five year old man for weed money that guy immediately gets the shit beat out of him by Russell Crowe's character yeah. so I wouldn't say yeah. that it's like saying that that's normal or anything. Like come on, like context here, y'all.
0: For real.
1: And uh a couple of quick hits to round it out. How about
0: Harry who gave it one star and says, "The money spent to get this movie would have been better
1: spent on toilet paper." Depends on if you're out of toilet paper or not. <laughs> yes, that's true.
0: <laughs> How about a half star from the appropriately named Mrs. Sploosh who says, "I would rather eat my shit than watch this movie again." <laughs>
1: depends on your shit, I guess.
0: (laughs) And finally, Sammy with a half star. It says, Coke bloat and Ryan Gyllenhaal team up. in what is the worst thing I've ever watched? My mom even has terrible taste. And she was like, this movie sucks balls. Sorry, fellas. I
1: bet her. I bet mom didn't say, did he say Ryan Gyllenhaal?
0: (laughs) He called them Coke bloat and Ryan Gyllenhaal. (laughs) 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 <laughs> that's right. that, that all that's of them, it that's 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 all, right. that's all that, the reviews that hated it <laughs> <laughs> that wow. last
1: one
3: that last one was pretty good,
1: good. yeah that was pretty good. so well now that we've heard from these goobers let's talk uh about <laughs> our own thoughts about the nice guys i mean i i have a pretty good idea of where this is gonna go uh because y'all have both seen this before i think i i know that me and gary mm-hmm. have talked about this movie in the past but i can't remember uh, if you you would said it whether you'd seen it, Todd, so you had seen this before?
3: Yeah, yeah, I'd seen it uh, some time ago. I, I forget the circumstances, but um, I I recall enjoying it. I mean, it's if you like that snappy uh, dialogue that Shane Black does so well, and I mean, I love a good mystery, so I'm down for that already. Uh, you got some great performances, uh, super stylized. I, it's yeah, it's it ticks all the boxes, man.
1: I mean, I I think it's pretty clear that we're all generally big fans of Black's work. I mean, if people go back and listen to that Black Christmas series, I I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, This guy just has like a really singular writing style that has been often imitated, but never matched. You hear that a lot. But I think Mm -hmm. in the case of Shane Black, it's very true. And I I think a lot of that comes from his own love of crime novels. Mm -hmm. Um, So what he does is he kind of takes these plots that feel very much at home in the novels that he grew up reading, you know, the stuff that he references a lot. And he goes. And this this kind of goes all the way back, to, even to his first script to Lethal Weapon. He combines plots that feel like they are—if you did like a bullet point list of plot, you know, uh, plot turns—it feels yeah. like they're right out of those crime novels. But then he combines them like perfectly with pure, just popcorn Hollywood action filmmaking. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what makes this stuff really unique.
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, and even looking at now, of course, it's not to the degree of this or lethal weapon or you know any of the other like real you know neo-noir crime centered mysteries but even iron man 3 has a bit of an element of a mystery to it it sure does
1: yeah it absolutely does
3: and we get to see tony stark i mean that that was one of my big complaints about uh, digress a little bit here but um that was one of my big complaints for a long time about batman movies is he's you know um the world's Champion. greatest detective. Yeah, the world's <laughs> greatest detective. We never see him solve a mystery.
1: Until the new uh, one.
3: Until the new one. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but here we actually get to see Tony Stark use his brain to uh to figure out the mystery of uh in Iron Man Three. And I always thought that was really great that you know his intellect extends farther than just building stuff.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, yeah.
3: And here you've got these two guys who yeah, are very broken. But when it does come to certain things, they are very good at those things and they work well together. And mm-hmm. then you combine it with the the moral compass of, uh, of the daughter there. And man, it's such a, it's such a, those, all of those interactions are so fun in and of themselves to watch. Yeah. I let agree. alone, let alone on the backdrop of this big mystery that extends to you know environmental issues and the all the way up to the doj yeah yeah all the way up so (laughs) yeah like i said it's it's
1: aces all the way around for me man i mean this guy shane black you know he he practically invented the buddy action genre as we know it Uh, i mean i I won't harp on that point too much because it was a a big point of discussion in our past series on him he didn't you know That Those quotes that you read earlier, Gary, he was being a little modest about like, hey, I didn't do anything new. This is done before, but he is remixing them a little bit. Uh, I mean, the fact is that even though he is doing something that had been done like in 48 hours by Walter Hill, he's making it feel so fresh and so new that it really feels like he invented a genre mm. uh because he he almost reinvented it or or solidified it like i i kind of put it in in um to put it in like horror movie terms 48 hours is your black christmas lethal weapon is your halloween like it's the one that set the rules for like it might not have been the first but it set the rules for what every other buddy cop movie after it would adhere to yeah uh without black's work on films like Lethal Weapon in The Last Boy Scout, you don't get Rush Hour. You don't get Bad Boys uh, or, you know, for more uh, recent ones like The Other Guys or The Heat or The Hitman's Bodyguard or anything like that. Uh, you, I mean, I could I could name movie. I could sit here for an hour naming movies that owe their existence to uh, the genre that Black perfected. I mean, basically, these movies, you've got two guys, I mean, or a girl, but usually it's two guys. They start the movie not liking each other they begrudgingly work together and by the end they're buddies that that's it that's how it goes <laughs> and and you can that, that sounds pretty simple but here's the thing is that none of the writers of those movies that i mentioned do it as well as Shane Black does uh and there are are a lot of reasons that that statement is true i think for one i think that black just inherently has a knack for the material more than other writers do uh and i think he has a natural talent for writing dialogue in a way that a lot of writers don't uh i I would even go so far as to say that other directors who are directing black's own material don't do it as well as he does uh lethal weapon probably comes the closest but more than any other director i think that black has a handle on like the tone that these films need Uh, Mm -hmm. which is why i think that kiss kiss bang bang and uh and the nice guys are probably the best movies with black's name attached to them because he's In his element, and he knows exactly how it's they're supposed to feel, exactly how the dialogue's supposed to snap, exactly how the comedy is supposed to work. Like he just knows it and and it's almost like instinctual for him.
3: Yeah.
0: It's so funny. Like I I mentioned uh Tarantino before. I said it's so funny, it's not really funny. Uh Tarantino before you know like he's a guy you can't imagine somebody i mean it's happened obviously and 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 has worked in the past with tarantino that somebody directed something he wrote but mm-hmm. um it works better when he's the director of the thing and and shane yeah. black and tarantino just are comparable in the fact that they're good writers and they have things they're pulling from you can tell their love of whatever genre they're pulling from but like shane black uh, you know i i read that quote or mentioned it before but just just because that's who he is and and i get it he seems like a guy who's very concerned with staying humble through the process and especially maybe even through because of life circumstances or whatever he feels it's important to be that way but and you know and and the world's full of people right now who love to stand on the shoulders of giants and pretend that they're the best thing in the world or they're infallible or something i think that shane black gets that people are imperfect. And that's one of the best parts about stories like this. And he's not giving himself enough credit, probably because of worrying about uh, trying to act like he's perfect or something, but like his, his characters are so, you know, we keep calling them broken or whatever, but that's, that's part of the charm of the whole thing is like these Mm -hmm. guys coming especially coming from a place like the eighties or something where, you know, guys like uh, Arnold and Stallone and, all of those dudes are like rocking it. You know, you see the of people like Bruce Willis uh, doing his thing or in Lethal Weapon, like uh, with what he was able to do for like Mel Gibson and Danny Glover and those kind of people that like, these aren't like super action stars. They're yeah. real men with real problems and not always the greatest person. And they fucked up. Yeah. And uh, and they're, you know, they're everybody's got flaws. And uh, and I love that. And, and I love in this one, too. In a world where Hollywood's always like looking for original content, it's crazy to me that Shane Black's not just like the go to guy still because his stuff is always interesting. I mean, he has his flavor, but like he's he's still unique, he has a unique voice, and still is he's not doing remakes of anything, you know, he's pulling from influences, but like he, I don't know, I feel like he's still evolving too, like even in this one where. Like, in some of the other movies we did during the series, there's, like, these characters that, like, it always seems like it's about this one, like, really wacky guy getting late, laced up with, like, a straight-laced person yeah, or, like, yeah. get kind of connected or something like that, you know, who an thinks odd, they have it couple. together. Yeah, yeah, the odd couple. Thing. But these guys, while still, I guess, an odd couple, they're both, like... I don't, it feels like this. This is the broadest cast list that he's had so far. Like that, mm-hmm. each character has like Gosling and uh, Audrey and, and Russell Crowe and Kim. Basically, there's there's like an ensemble here of people that make this thing work. And that I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not thinking about it right. But it feels like he's he's broadened that all of these people have more depth than his previous stories. Huh.
1: Well I think his his characters always have a lot of depth i I think part of what you're you're saying, you know when you say that these are guys that they're not your typical action star you know that you you would expect from these movies uh that's part of like how black subverts ec- expectations for this type of movie I mean that's that's something he's really good at in his writing um and and I love I love that about him because I love that he. Uh, he makes decisions even within the script that subverts what an audience expects from that type of movie, you know, and and that's what I love that about movies. I mean, there are, I won't mention the fandoms but there are some fandoms out there that when they go to a movie, they want to see exactly what they're expecting to see. That's boring. I don't want to, I don't, I want to be surprised when I go to the movie, I don't want to be able to guess every plot point as I, before I walk into the theater, where's the fun in that. Uh, you know, why Why the hell would I want that? I want a movie to surprise me at every turn. And that's something that Black does time and time again. Uh, he's really been doing it his whole career. I mean, think if you watch Lethal Weapon, there's that scene where um, you, you've got uh, Murtaugh and Riggs, they're walking to a house to interview a suspect, and the house explodes. Like that's uh, that's a, that's an, uh, an example of him, some burning expectations. Uh, a later example is an Iron Man three in the way that he handled the Mandarin, which pissed a lot of people off. Uh, it, it made a lot of people mad because it wasn't comic accurate, but you can't really do Mandarin comic accurate without being sort of, uh, kind of racially stereotyping the character. So right. he just went a completely different direction and it made a lot of people mad, but I loved that twist because for one. I, w- I didn't see it coming. And for two, it paid off with one of the funniest performances in any of the Marvel movies with what Ben Kingsley did in that role. It's wonderful. I, and I, I think The Nice Guys is kind of the ultimate example of Black subverting expectations. I totally agree with that. And it's something I want to, for, for our next bonus
0: episode, I kind of wanted to talk about that, especially when we bring up the next series we're going to do. You know, for him, it, it you just reminded me of an, another thing I remember hearing that I didn't even have written down, but basically he was talking about making Iron Man three. And one of the things that he liked when he was working with Marvel, as he s- was talking about how superhero movies are huge and doing all these things. But he said, one of the things he liked about Marvel is that he thought the reason they were succeeding where others might have failed was that they have the big moments. They have the mythic, hero walking into the room who's backlit or like lit below and like storming into the place. He's like, but then they might stub their toe and he's like, and yeah. they don't forget to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and he was yeah. like, and that's important. And, uh, and that feels like what he does with everything. Like he's got the fucking LA shootout and, uh, and that's cool. And it could in any other person's action movie, that'd be one thing. But in this one, like fucking healing, loses his bullets and, <laughs> and then he gets yeah, right. a gun thrown at him that goes out the window. <laughs> well, like, yeah. It, violence is never easy
1: yeah, in any of yeah. these movies. Well, that's what I'm talking about, like subverting expectations, doing things like that, like where he tosses the gun and it goes through the window, which is, A, not the cool like action guy move you would expect from this type of movie, and it's also just really funny. It's a great laugh uh, because I think you could take – a if you took just the plot of this movie – without not thinking of the characters, but just like the plot of what, you know, the conspiracy, there are a million ways that you could do a detective story like this. And 99% of those are probably boring or what you've seen a million times. Yeah. Uh, there are so many tropes in that genre, so many, uh, you know, things you could fall into that have been done over and over, but the nice guys manages to zig every time you think it, it's going to zag, you know, yeah. for example, One of my one uh, for one of my favorite examples, there's a a ton of them in this movie. You just mentioned one that I hadn't even thought of. But uh, another one is where uh, towards the end of the movie where they're in their airport hotel, they go up the elevator, elevator opens. And in most movies, that's where they rush in to save the day. But that elevator opens and there's a bloodbath in progress. And they're just like, nope, (laughs) they just close the (laughs) elevator doors and leave. That's great. I love that. Uh, you know, uh, and it's it's funny, but it's also very fitting for these characters that have been established. Um, another one, you know, is when they're disposing of Sid Shattuck's body, they drop it over a fence. Normally that's the end of the scene, but in, in this version, he falls down into another house's backyard and lands on their table where they're having an outdoor dinner party. Uh, and then you've got uh, probably my number one example of Things that you would not expect to see in this type of movie is when uh, Holland March falls asleep while driving and hallucinates a giant bumblebee voiced by Hannibal Burris in the back seat <laughs> smoking yeah. a cigarette. Uh, I mean, what other movie like in this genre would dare to do that? And it's funny and it's weird, but it also culminates in one of the best payoffs ever when Holland reaches for Healy's ankle gun. To find out that he dreamt that the ankle gun would existed to begin with. It's great payoff, like 20 yeah. minutes later, uh, from just this bizarre little scene that they threw into the middle of the movie with a giant CGI Bumblebee. It's really funny and it's so weird. Yeah. These guys are
0: are flawed in like a way. I mean, and this that part's not, not something new that like Shane Black brought in, like Mel Gibson was. Fucking suicidal and lethal weapon. People forget that part, like the mm-hmm. the fact that there was like a buddy cop comedy or whatever. But Mel Gibson was ready to like put a bullet through his brain like a couple of times in that film. Yeah. And, and uh so these guys have flaws, and even by the end of this movie, these guys haven't like fixed everything, they've just no. learned that they're gonna work on it and they're yeah, and yeah. they're and they're dealing with it.
1: And- that's great. I mean, I think that's part of what elevate elevates blacks. Take on this type of material is that even though the movies are really fun, like he's not afraid of injecting some darkness and some sadness in them. I mean, for, for you know, going to what you said, Lethal Weapon, his first screenplay, when we meet Murtaugh or Riggs, shit, that's Riggs, Riggs isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> when we meet Riggs, he's yeah, he's like got a gun in his mouth, uh, t- uh, contemplating suicide. That's how we're introduced to his character pretty much. I mean, yeah. you get a little scene before that, but that's pretty much how you meet him. And that's a through line that continues through like Bruce character, Bruce Willis's character in the last boy scout. He's a very like broken character. Uh, Robbie, D- Robert Downey Jr.'s character in kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Uh, like Shane Black populates his film, his films with sad, broken men or in the case of long kiss, good night, sad, broken women. But it does add gravitas to the films. And I think that that trend is one that continues with this movie because, uh, you know, it, it's easy to forget that because this is a really fun movie. It's a really funny movie. But if you really think about it, like it's also a pretty sad movie. There's a lot of really sad stuff in regards to these characters. I mean, uh, Gosling's character is an alcoholic who blames himself for his wife's death. And he's a shitty detective. He's a worse father. Jackson Healy is also an alcoholic, although he, is, uh, he has gotten sober. But he's also dealing with the pain of having his wife having left him for another man. And I think one, one of the the key scenes in the movie is this, when he's telling the story about the day that he confronted the guy in the diner, Mm. Uh, that's kind of, it's a, it's a heartbreaking scene. Uh, He says uh, something along the lines of just for a moment, I felt useful. And that's like, and you see the sadness on Russell Crowe's face. That's why having an actor like Russell Crowe in that role works so well. Uh, It's sad and it's pretty heavy for what is on the surface, a lighthearted you know action comedy but i think that that story that he tells is also kind of the film's thesis uh mm-hmm. that and, and the and the that and kind of the scene where the sun goes up sun goes down nothing really changes scene that gosling gives earlier in the film because at the end of the movie like you said gary they haven't really changed anything i mean amelia's dead <laughs> at the end of the movie the bad guys <laughs> have gotten off because there's not enough evidence to convict them so the bad guys essentially win uh, the sun rises and the sun sets. Nothing's really changed. Uh, but for like a moment during this film, these guys felt useful. And now, are they better people by the end of the film as a result? I mean, that's arguable. Not really. I mean, they're in a bar. So March is still an alcoholic, and Healy seems to have fallen off the wagon by the end of the movie. But there's a little bit of hope still that they have for the future. You know, they've teamed up to create their own detective agency uh at the end they've reset their
0: priorities i would say
1: yeah yeah exactly (laughs) so they are they're they're, they've got something to look forward to they're they're looking forward to uh, the the adventures that that this new partnership might bring which you know is the perfect setup for a sequel right you would hope You, you would hope well when promoting the film prior to its release black he expressed a lot of interest in doing a sequel provided the movie made money. he sa- It literally says that in interviews. He's like, I don't want to like jinx it because I mean, the movie's got to make some money first. Uh, he, he even says in one, he's like, maybe if people just you know go see Captain America six times and instead of seeing it a seventh time, they go see our movie, then we might be all right. Uh, but <laughs> as we know the movie didn't make enough money uh crow uh crow and gosling they also expressed interest in a sequel should it ever happen uh in 2018 black reiterated his desire to make a sequel to the nice guys but he also noted that it was unlikely due to the the film's box office performance uh, and th- i think that is a shame because i think the nice guys really does feel like an origin story for this detective agency that the these guys have created and i would watch 10 more movies with these guys playing These characters. I mean, I think they're great, and I would love to see them do a, a case every, like, like what Ryan Johnson seems to be doing with, um, with the Knives Out movies, like just do a different case every movie, just like those, you know, Mike Shane novels that he based this on. Like yeah. every, you've got these these detectives on a different case every single time. I I think it would be great, but uh, you know, that that yeah. doesn't seem to be in the cards. I don't know if
0: it was the same interview you were just referencing, but I did see where Shane Black had said something about, like, it was tough during all of this. He was like, uh, private eye movies are my favorite. We tried with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. That was Warner Brothers. That performed enough. It didn't lose money, but it sure didn't perform enough that it made money. At the time, we were trounced by the Dukes of Hazzard which had oh. Jessica Simpson. <laughs> he said we had Robert Downey when he was a little rough and had just gotten out of the pokey. And we had Val Kilmer when he was at a low point in his career. So what are you going to do? It didn't do well, but it was a movie, and I'll keep going back to that well. I could make detective films for the rest of my life. And by the way, we hope the audience feels free to help. If you want to go see, or if you want to see more detective movies, here's one in the middle of all that branded summer competition, largely with cape-wearing people. But if you want to see (laughs) Guys with Ties instead, uh, you can probably help us out a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) The only thing I had for fun facts basically was just uh, the, you know, references that are in the film. I mean, there's a lot of references that Shane Black pulls out. I mean, there's the stuff I mentioned earlier, Bagarasi mentioning uh, the Rockford Files was one of the things they were watching. Uh, There's like literally apparently a Yellow Pages ad. Uh, for the detective agency in one of the scenes, that's a complete exact copy of the ad that Jim Rockford used in the Rockford files. Mm-hmm. Uh, he keeps his gun in a cookie jar, which was from that show. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, there's uh, you know, the you know, you we mentioned the Lou Costello thing, the uh, there's 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 all kinds of stuff. I guess the elevator scene, the music playing in the background is the same as the music, uh, uh, that is the girl from. Ipanema, which is from uh, they it was also heavily used in the Blues Brothers, which is where they decided nice. to pull that from. Yeah, uh, and uh, there's a movie called Better Luck Tomorrow, uh, from 2002, uh, when uh, Healy's trying to learn that word equanimity, uh, while feeding his fish. That whole scene is like apparently borrowed exactly from Better Luck Tomorrow. And let's see, what else did I have? Anything else fun? Ooh. Well, Black also
1: he also reuses a bit of dialogue from Iron Man three at the end uh, when they're in the hotel, the scene where they are in the um, hotel bar when they first walk in and Gosling says he'll stop doing it, doing what? And then uh, Crow grabs him by the tie and slams his face into the bar. Robert Downey Jr. and uh, Don Cheadle had that same bit of dialogue. Oh, yeah. Oh, Iron yeah. <laughs> so he, he borrowed from himself in that case. Well, he
0: does that a lot. Like, because, I mean, if you think back to Lethal Weapon, I, and I saw some of these elsewhere, I don't remember where, but, uh, like, uh, I mean, a character from an adult movie dies at the beginning of Lethal Weapon. That girl commits suicide that has been filmed in Porto, basically. Uh last boy scout danielle harris's character is calling her dad a fuck up uh which exactly happens in this too Mm -hmm. and uh there's i mean there's like little things like that um oh i remember one the toast at the end to the birds remember the two guys doing the toast are named gosling and crow
1: so, <laughs> ah. but, but I think they're saying to the birds because it was, it's about the air pollution thing that the people were protesting earlier.
0: Is it just that? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is.
1: <laughs> I don't know. Well, I guess this is a point where we get into further viewing. Uh, it's been a while since we've done this with all three of us. So uh the last few further viewings have made a little bit more sense than they do when Todd's here. Uh, so. <laughs> That's true. That's fair. Uh, (laughs) But since Todd is back, I'm going to let you uh, start off, Todd, with telling us what you would pair with The Nice Guys as a double feature.
3: Okay. So um, I love a good mystery, as I mentioned earlier. So this is an adaptation uh, featuring an actor from The Nice Guys. uh, Science fiction. Mm -hmm. 2002. Okay. One one of the taglines is the system is perfect until it comes after you.
1: Oh, you're making us guess this again, aren't you? Yeah. What's the act? Who's the act? Can you tell me the actor from The Nice Guys?
0: Um It's Minority Report. Oh, yeah. It it's gotta be minority report. <laughs> it who, it who, is. From
1: the, who from the Nice Guys is in Minority Report?
3: Uh that was uh
1: Lois Smith. Who, oh no, oh, she's from, the old lady with the Coke bottle glasses. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she, yeah. She's she's Dr.
3: Iris Hinneman. She's a uh, mm.
1: Suki Stackhouse's grandmother in true blood.
3: Yeah, there oh yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. But yeah, um minority or poor directed by Steven Spielberg. Uh,
1: uh, weird Cruz, choice, Todd.
3: Yeah, it's I like I like <laughs> a good mystery. So there you go. I it's mean, a mean, great,
1: it's a great movie, but stylistically bo- could not be, be feel more different than the race. They're,
3: nice they're both highly stylized, just in opposite directions from each other. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, if you say so, Todd. I mean, I, I've only I'll I'll never turn down an excuse to watch minority report it's a it's an incredible film yeah it's a good but, one. Uh, that would not have been one that i would have picked <laughs> but anyway what do you got gary um i actually
0: just pulled all about i originally just had bullet from 1968 that i thought would be fun just because of the car stuff and all that mm-hmm. i mean you could obviously pick like most of shade black's movies that it's yeah i mean kiss kiss bang bang
1: is the easiest one but
0: uh But what I'll do instead is going off some inspiration from Shane black himself on movies that made him. I sorry. I'm putting over that podcast today, I guess, but I listened to it and I thought they don't need our help. They don't need our help. They're doing okay. (laughs) But it was cool to hear Shane black talk about his experiences. He also worked at a movie theater at one point, Justin. So, uh, there you go. They talked about the popcorn making and food prep process and those, but, Mm. uh, He, uh, he mentioned some movies that really inspired him or, uh, 1957, the sweet smell of success with Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis, and, uh, also Barry Levinson's diner in 1982. Um, those were huge movies for him. And, uh, and I guess the most comparable to this, although not technically, but since he talked about how much of an inspiration Dirty Harry was to him, then I'll throw Dirty Harry in this, uh. As also a thing. He also mentioned Darby O'Gill and the Little People, which I had never (laughs) heard about anybody talk about a movie like he does about that movie and I want to see that again.
1: Yeah. Oh, I watched it a lot when I was a kid.
0: (laughs) He talks about the ending scene, Darby O'Gill and the Little People where the character has done everything they can to make the success but it still fails at the end and he's being taken off into the other side or whatever. He talks about that moment being, like, something he's striving for, like, that he loved that, like, ending of feeling like it's all failed, and, like, Mm. then there's this, like, something that changes it at the very end, but, like, that, uh, that that moment where you don't know and you think you've done everything you can do and you've still fucked up, and anyway, so that was interesting. That's
1: interesting. So my pick, I mean, I, I kind of, you know, the first thing you think of is Other Shane Black movies uh, or especially Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I feel like that is an incredible like Christmas Eve double feature right there. (laughs) Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and the nice guys. But uh, I wanted to go a little less a little less obvious. I mean, because you could also pick any number of other like, you know, buddy cop movies, but none of them are going to quite be as good. So I kind of went with one that just kind of has the same. A similar vibe, I would say, to this movie, and does actually feature the porn industry, although less uh, less, uh, spec- you know, not not quite as much as this one does. Uh, but from nineteen ninety eight, uh, the Big Lebowski. Oh. the big Lebowski because it's got a mystery element yeah, it uh does. it's 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 also kind of a period piece I mean it was made in it came out in 98 but it was it's set in the early 90s uh so it's a little bit of a period piece but uh it it just feels right with this movie to me uh and of course you've got you know the bunny Lebowski gets tied up in the porn industry it, 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 there there are elements that are similar but that's my pick the big Lebowski 1998 nice. Cohen Brothers movie that I love Good call. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So the nice guys, as we said, you know, did not do great at the box office, but that film's failure didn't really slow black down. Two years after the nice guys, he directed The Predator, which he co-wrote alongside with his monster squad co-writer Fred Decker.
3: He's also a Star Trek Enterprise writer-producer.
1: Among other also Robocop 3, if we want to get into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He has also been attached to an adaptation of the pulp magazine character, Doc Savage, Mm -hmm. and to an adaptation of a series of pulp novels called The Destroyer, which was previously uh, adapted into the film Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. That was based on the the Destroyer novels. Uh, Both of those seem to be like very much in Black's wheelhouse, although... Not a lot has been reported on them in the last few years. I think the last thing I saw was in like 2015, 2016, right around the time of The Nice Guys. But uh, So I'm I'm really not sure if they're still in development or not. But more recently, it was announced that Black was re-teaming with Bagarazzi on an adaptation of a series of crime fiction novels written by Donald E. Westlake uh, called Parker. Parker is the main character. It's a series of novels based on this character. And the first film which is to star Robert Downey Jr. as the Parker character. It's called Play Dirty, and it's also set to reteam Black with Joel Silver. So it seems like that probably is going to be his next movie. This was announced a little less than a year ago. So they're in kind of pre-development, the development stage on that one. Nice. And despite its box office failure, though, The Nice Guys is a film that it has gained a cult following in the year since its release. Uh, A lot of people, unfortunately, didn't see it in theaters, but did catch it, you know, on Netflix, which is where it's streaming now. A lot of people have caught it on streaming services or rented it, and it's become very popular. And everyone who loves it seems, everyone who sees it seems to love it, I think. So I'm not sure if that'll be enough to get a movie, the, the movie, the sequel that we're all wishing for, but... You know, one can hope that maybe one day, uh, one day, hopefully soon, we'll get uh, the nice guys part two.
0: Yeah, the only thing like I even looked for like uh, Baccarazzi talking about it. And he said in the like few interviews I can find for him, he said there's no plan for a sequel. Uh, He said we have talked about it, but we were like, you know, we could do something in the 80s. We like the aesthetic of the 70s stuff, but the 80s stuff would be fun, too. He said, I have no idea what it would be, but something in the 80s would be fun. And there could be an 80s soundtrack, which would also be fun. The thing is, then we're going to be in the territory where Shane's already made movies. He did. Yeah, like actually and, made. Movies, so, yeah. He's like, so we'd just be knocking at the back door of that. And I don't know if he wants to revisit it.
1: Yeah. And I've, I've also seen a little bit of chatter about a, a TV adaptation. Well, obviously not with Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling, but a, a series called The Nice Guys, which, it you know, at the time that they were shopping this around as a TV show in the early 2000s, it was a very different landscape than we have now. And I could definitely see this working as a TV show. You could do it like Fargo style or, or, or True Detective style, even where it's a, a series of different characters every season. You know, I, I think that could work. Or I, I even saw one article that mentioned... uh it being reconceptualized as the nice girls or something like that and having two uh, two female leads in a series. But I, I haven't seen a lot of concrete information about that. I think it's just something that's been kind of shopped around, but nothing's really happened with it.
0: It's tough no. with Shane Black because on one hand you could see as a guy who loves those like pulp detective novels and like could just churn out some stories it feels like for yeah. like those kind of things that a TV series would be really cool if he wanted to get on board for that. But then also he seems to like, be like real wary of like when he locks onto something he's gonna write and then like well
1: yeah that's that's the worry I would have with a TV show is that unless he's writing every episode you you lose that Shane Black like dialogue and that that very specific element that he brings to the script yeah very true well I think that's it for this episode of uh, the Cinema Shock Roulette guys unless you have anything else to add I think that's uh, we've said about all we can say about the nice guys. Where can you fellas be found on the internet for all of our listeners? I am at, this is Gary Horde
0: on everything. Uh, Follow the NWA, by the way, follow the NWA, National Wrestling Alliance, at NWA, do that too. Uh,
3: If you like Star Trek, I will be hosting uh, Trek Fest 38 in Riverside, Iowa, June 22nd and 24th. Go to trekfest.org for details. I'm also working my way through the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order on my show, Computer Resume Podcast, available now wherever you get your podcasts and on social media at Computer Resume, and I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and D D Beyond.
1: I am at Justin underscore Bishop. I am on Instagram and Letterboxd there. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, which I use every now and then. Uh, the show is Cinema underscore Shuck. That's on Instagram and Twitter. You can also find us on facebook uh you can also find us at cinemashock.net where we have all of our episodes as well as links to our discord channel and our merch as always uh do us a favor if you like the show rate review and share us with all your friends if you don't like the show keep it to yourself (laughs) and until next time this has been a lot of fun by the way guys getting to revisit
0: uh shade black it's fun uh, Maybe Colorado we'll have a series that feels like and it. Would yeah, be
1: nice to do that again for other filmmakers we've talked. Maybe about. yeah, Maybe we need to one. like revisit David Cronenberg one day. We've got some other folks that we need to revisit.
2: Yeah,
0: uh, I just wanted to break that up. Also, by the way, real quick shout out to uh, was it Hooptoberfest? That uh, did you see them? They they retweeted us and mm-hmm. uh, put over our uh, Toby Hooper series. Oh, nice Hooperville, Hooperville, Hooperville. That was it was. I just very looked very cool. Up. Uh, it's a, it's a, oh no, it's a, it's a book coming out, Hooperville, oh, about, Toby and they're Hooper. celebrating the cinema of Toby Hooper. And, uh, they put us over on the social media. I love it. That we had an excellent series about Toby Hooper. Well, thank so, you guys. We appreciate nice. that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, until next week, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather
1: and be excellent to each other.
3: All right. I was at a diner in Hollywood and Johnny with the keys started threatening people. So I did something about it. I acted. I didn't plan to. I didn't, you know, I just did it. I took Johnny out. I didn't even get paid for it. So I ended up with a key in the bicep, 500 bucks of hospital bills. It was it was stupid, really. When I think about it, it was the best day of my life.
1: (laughs) Okay, all right. So at the beginning of this episode, we had a dumb little thing where we read off we we basically asked Chat GPT to write an episode of the podcast uh, about the nice guys, and it came off a little stiff. I think right, like it felt like it was written by a computer. Yeah, uh, was stiff. Yeah, yeah. So we are like, yeah, we curse more than that. So, uh, so I I put the the prompt back in to to the AI chat and said, okay, let's let's try to write an episode of CinemaShock about the nice guys, but do it as if Shane Black is writing the script. And so uh, we got very different results for that. So uh, <laughs> we will now, as a little bonus at the end of the episode, present that to you. Welcome to
0: the Cinema Shock podcast, where we talk about the best and worst of movies and everything in between. I'm your host, Gary, and today we're talking about the nice guys the 2016 action comedy written and directed by the man himself, Shane Black. He would say that. Uh, <laughs> with me today is my co-host, Justin.
1: Justin, what did you think of the movie? Well, Gary, I got to say, I fucking loved it. The Nice Guys <laughs> is the perfect example of what makes Shane Black black's writing so fucking great it's got the snappy dialogue the witty banter the hardball detective shit and of course it's got the goddamn 70s vibe that just oozes coolness
0: (laughs) hell yeah justin hell yeah I couldn't agree more. The Nice Guys is a fucking masterpiece, plain and simple. Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe are fucking amazing as Holland March and Jackson Healy, the two private detectives who team up to solve a case involving a missing girl and a conspiracy that goes all the way to the top.
1: And let's not forget about Angourie Rice, who plays Holly, Holland's daughter. She's fucking fantastic, and she steals every goddamn scene she's in. <laughs>
0: You're goddamn right, Justin. And Gory Rice is a fucking star in the making, and she holds her own against Gosling and Crow, which is no fucking easy
1: feat. And let's not forget about the action scenes, Gary. They're fucking brutal, but also hilarious as shit. (laughs) (laughs) Like the scene in the bathroom where Gosling's character is trying to escape and he keeps fucking up. That shit had me fucking dying.
0: Yeah, Justin. That scene was fucking hilarious. And the scene where Crow's character beats the shit out of that guy at the bar, fucking
1: classic. And that ending, Gary, that goddamn ending, it's so fucking perfect. I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but holy shit, it's so fucking satisfying. You're goddamn right, Justin. <laughs>
2: that's
0: I guess that's my line. <laughs> Goddamn uh, goddamn right justin the ending of the nice guys is one of the best fucking endings in any movie ever it's got heart it's got humor and it's got a motherfucking killer soundtrack
1: <laughs> and let's not forget about the goddamn setting gary 70s los angeles has never looked cooler it's like you can feel the smog and the neon lights and the fucking polyester absolutely justin the
0: nice guys is a goddamn feast for the senses and it's one of the most entertaining and fucking awesome movies you'll ever see if you haven't seen it yet what the fuck are you waiting for that's all the time we have for today's episode of the cinema shock podcast
1: thanks for fucking listening and we'll see you (laughs) next time yeah thanks for fucking listening you motherfuckers (laughs) (laughs) still no time no, no, hey, no nope. chat GPT does not does not acknowledge Todd's existence. <laughs> <laughs> He's just the hype man. He's like the dancing guy from the mighty mighty boss Tone, just giggling in the background. <laughs> That's it.
3: <laughs> That's my role. <laughs> happy to happy to oblige.
1: Oh man.
3: Oh, that got tickled.
1: I think we will get an NC17 rating for that.
3: <laughs> yeah, we might. We might. <laughs>